Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good morning, everyone. Uh, this is Melanie Sanoe with the Arizona Council. Welcome to day two of Arizona's state conference and convention. Very excited to start off today with our first program around smart homes from out on your sidewalk all the way to your back door and everything in between. So I would like to introduce our panel for today. Joining us from Ohio uh, is Tim Schwartz, who's the host of Life After Blindness and the co-host of RNIB's Tech Talk, as well as Kim and Chris Nova of Mystic Access. These three, if you want to picture this, are going to sit around a table and just talk. If you all have questions, feel free to raise your hand during the program. Thank you guys for being here. Thank Thanks you for having, having us. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about smart home. I was going to say smart phone, but we don't want to talk about smartphones. Yeah, let's smart not do that. Phones could come into play when configuring your smart home. And controlling your smart home a little bit. Right. So when you have a smart home, it could be as little smart or as majorly smart as you want it. For example, you could probably have a light that turns on and off via a voice commands with a, a little plug that connects to the internet, or you could go crazy and rewire your whole house for your smart home technology. We've gone the latter route. <laughs> <laughs> Some of it's a little, a little crazy. We've done a lot though. We're a married couple and we have a very smart house. It's not as smart as some people's houses, but we are definitely on the, quote, smarter side of the smart home playing field, as it were. But there are obviously caveats and things to keep in mind about smart homes, and we'll get more into that as we go. So smart homes can have thermostats or security systems, washers, dryers, microwaves, anything that basically connects to the internet and you can control it, would be a smart device of some kind. And if you've purchased any electronics these days, they pretty much want to connect to the internet. They pretty much want to be controlled by your virtual assistant of choice. You could even have robot vacuums and things like that. You can control via your voice. Some of them can be as fancy as being able to tell them to vacuum the kitchen so it'll go into the kitchen because it knows your home and then it can go back to little dock when it's done. Yeah, it can actually map your home and know where things are and which room is which and you can give it the voice command to vacuum the kitchen. You can tell it to do that or you can schedule it to go ahead and do that as well and have it do a single room if there's a single room you want done more than once or whatever you need. But the main building blocks that you must have in order to kind of start this process, usually at least, are some sort of voice assistant, Google, A-Lady, A-L-E-X-A, whomever, and Wi-Fi. Those are your essential ingredients to kind of begin the journey. What you can do, I'd already alluded to thermostats, and we had already alluded a little bit to possibly creepy crawlies. When I first started <laughs> dabbling in the smart home arena, I was looking at thermostats, and one of my main concerns about having a thermostat that I couldn't 
interact with by myself. You know, you couldn't go up to the thermostat itself and change the temperature. You'd have to have some kind of an app in order to do it. So my main concern was the fact that what would happen if I lost internet and internet went down for a couple of days? The problem with that, as far as your thermostat itself goes, nothing really would happen. You can't control the thermostat yourself, but your programming would still run. So if you have your thermostat set to, say, lower the temperature at 7 a.m. and raise it at 10 p.m. or something like that, those times would still happen. Your thermostat would continue its programming, and then when the thermostat came back online, you could start to control it again. And that would be a caveat, Chris, for a lot of other things like a smart doorbell, smart door lock, absolutely, uh, mm-hmm. things like that. Because in those cases, unless there's a manual, you know, physical manual ability to do something with it, you're not going to control it anymore if you have some sort of power outage. So that is something to keep in mind when you are going to a smart home. We have a story about that. Last year we got married and I have smart locks and Right when we left, the battery in the smart lock deadbolt decided to die. So I was like, how am I going to get back into my home? And you're freaking out because there's nothing you can do. The Uber's on its way. You can't. You don't have time to go change the batteries. Fortunately, I had a back door that had batteries, and my friend came in while we were gone or when I was gone to change the battery and lock. But having said that, The specific brand of lock that I have has two little contacts on the bottom of the lock where you can get a nine volt battery and you can power the lock because there's no key on this specific lock. So that's one thing to keep in mind in that kind of a situation. Do you have a way to either power the lock or do you have a way to get in with a key or something like that? So obviously the thing we'd recommend to anyone who's kind of beginning this journey and having those same fears that he did, and certainly that I have brought up several times over the years, is know your devices. Mm-hmm. When your devices have other manual components that you can utilize, make sure you know how to use them. Don't rely on your smart assistant to always set your alarm or lock your doors or turn up your thermostat or whatever that is if it actually has manual controls buttons dials a touch screen that you can kind of maneuver through make sure you know how to do those things because you don't know when your assistant is going to be having a day off because we know they take them off and just not be listening to anything you have to say and you have an emergency. We never want this kind of thing to happen, obviously, but when it does, and it sometimes does, you need to know what you're doing to be able to access the actual hardware and deal with it yourself when it's applicable and when it's possible. I've got another story about, I won't mention the name of the company, but it was an alarm that I used to have. And one time they were very, very proud of the fact that you could disarm the alarm through your app and a lot of people didn't buy keypads you know internal in their houses and what happened was is people went to bed they armed their alarms when they woke up there was an internet outage and you couldn't disarm your alarm because the app had to go out to the mothership in order to come back and disarm your alarm so the company learned a very 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 important lesson (laughs) 
about that. And they offered, at least at the time, they were offering their keypads at their cost so that people would actually go and buy them. I believe that they managed to fix that error, but that's another caveat of this. And you couldn't call the police if the alarm went off. So if you were in a panic state and it couldn't phone home because their servers were, were down, it wasn't the fact that your internet was down. It was the fact that their servers were down. So that's another thing to to keep in mind. And here we are, at least Kim and I, I won't speak for Tim, but Kim and I just absolutely love home automation. But these are the things that you have to keep in mind. There's the good and there's the bad. There's also the bad of, we hear these stories about hackers hacking into your account and being able to look at your camera feeds. So if you have, uh, I remember a few Christmases ago, there was a hacker that hacked into some little kid's bedroom and was scaring the little kid because of the voice that was coming through the speakers in the camera. You know, you just want to make sure that that's not you. But a lot of that is people always say, and I know all of us always say, that's the due diligence to make sure you've got strong passwords. You're updating those passwords regularly. You know, your actual home internet connection, you know, password, you, you've got a good, strong uh, modem password, you know, things like that. Make it hard for people to do that. You know, make those situations be the one out of a million or whatever. Then don't be the, the, the statistic, easy for me to say, right. um, you know, be outside of that because it is amazing how much just a really, really good, strong password, not only in the app that you're using to connect to these devices, you know, the strong password there, but a strong home modem password. I know a lot of people can, you know, kind of get stuck in the rut of, oh, I just want it to be nice and simple and my kid's birthday or my anniversary. And I know we all hear it, but it's always worth mentioning again, make those harder, make those really difficult for somebody to guess. You can still make it easier for you to maybe remember, but make it really hard for somebody else to guess so that that's not a situation because once you get past, okay, I've, I've done everything I can to secure these accounts secure my house, secure my internet connection. It will open up everything for you, especially for us as blind and partially sighted people, but even anybody with any type of mobility disability or, or any type of you know situation where it may not be easy to get up to go and get to a light panel or to be able to see or, or activate something, say in your microwave or your washer and dryer that, that we've alluded to a little bit and we'll get you know more into, I'm sure. But, you know, things that aren't made accessible, maybe out of the box but can be with, with a smart device or an app, just make sure it's as secure as possible. And once that fear, that worry has been eliminated, it opens up so many awesome possibilities. Absolutely true. And don't hesitate to learn about password managers. Some of our passwords that we use because we have a password manager on our on our apps and, and that we're using for, you know, entering one simple password or, well, it's not a simple password in our cases, but we're entering one password to be able to manage everything else is really a lifesaver because then we can have, we have one, we, I don't know if you'll know what it is exactly, Chris, but it's probably like 40 characters long or 60 characters long. I mean, we've got ridiculous master passwords. We couldn't even crack them. There's no way. We don't know what they, you know, we know they're, they're safely stored in there thanks to our master passwords. It's just one way to simplify that process. But yes, you're absolutely correct in that the more due dil- diligence you can pay on the front end of this to make sure that you have an ironclad as much as possible network and all these pieces, 
then you can just sit back and enjoy it because you don't have to worry about that. So it's worth working a little harder at the outset. You guys are talking about kind of taking this back because I'm curious because I've got a couple things, but maybe not as much as you guys talking about, you know, the outside to the inside. So I know, for example, I had found that it's maybe it's supposed to be more for somebody who's deaf, but I like it as well. Something as simple as there's a mailbox sensor that you can purchase that when the postman you know, or, or postperson opens up your mailbox, it senses that and alerts you inside with the sensor. Hey, you've had mail, you know, there's something there or motion detectors to let you know that someone's approaching your house or, you know, all the way up to the door of having a, you know, smart doorbell, smart, you know, smart door lock, like we talked about with cameras, maybe on the door. How how much of that or even more do you guys uh, get <laughs> Let's into? talk about We that. have all that. <laughs> I thought so. So yeah, let's leave. Yeah. So we have, you're talking about the mailbox alert. We've got the one from Ring. A lot of our stuff is is ring equipment, at least the cameras and the doorbells. So the way I actually have it set up is that if somebody opens the mailbox, you get alerted from the inside, but it's also set up to trigger every single camera and start recording. So that if for whatever reason, and this does happen, the motion detection on the front doorbell camera doesn't start recording, that's a guarantee that one thing triggers the next thing that'll trigger the next thing. And you can then have those eyeballs uh, looking over you. For example, one time I was telling a customer of ours about this, this ring setup in the camera recording. And she had said, you know, that's an invasion of privacy because the camera's recording somebody that's on your property. And I was like, well, it's my property. They're, it's my property. Mm, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's my property. It's my eyeballs in the sky. Yeah, yeah they're serving as our eyes for the stuff exactly. we don't necessarily know. And then if we need more information about what's on that camera at any given point, and we have done this at least twice in the last few months, is call an agent. We're IRA users ourselves, and we call an agent and we say, hey, <laughs> had something weird happen just a few minutes ago. You know, can you tell us what's on the feed? And so, you know, if you get a good agent, they're very responsive and they'll give you really good information about what's on the feed. You can kind of get an idea of what the heck just happened outside your door. And your cameras and stuff are always getting updated. I got a, I got a cute story to tell about the camera. I have a flood cam on the garage. And I just recently, a couple months ago, discovered that it has a motion alert warning. So what it does is if the camera senses motion, a nice female voice will say, hi, you are currently being recorded. So the other day I was walking around my neighborhood and a few years ago, the town decided to straighten out the sidewalks. So when I was walking home before, there was always this kind of cutaway into the sidewalk where it kind of went down this hill. And I always knew, okay, from this direction, I am home. So Not anymore. Not anymore. It's gone. I'm walking down the street and I'm actually talking to Kim on the phone because we were doing something. So she was home and I was talking to her and I says, I'm almost there. And all of a sudden I hear, hi, you are currently being recorded. I was like, yep, I'm home. And I heard it from outside, from outside my window and I was like, oh, you're home. <laughs> Our neighbors probably hate us. <laughs> but that's just a way you could find your own home in that instance, for whatever reason, it was enough for that camera to see down the driveway and see me. It doesn't happen all the time, 
But that time it was helpful to say, oh, I'm actually home. And I was relying on GPS at the time. And we all know how flaky that can be when you're at your destination. And in addition to all that, we've got the cameras that are, or the A-Lady devices that are being triggered as well saying, so you'll hear a neighbor, for instance, you'll know somebody says motion detected at the backyard. And then you might hear, hi, you are currently being recorded, which is why I made the the joke about the neighbors probably hating it because they're hearing that all the time now. But anybody who's anywhere near, they're getting recorded. We're getting alerted. It's showing up as notifications, push notifications on our phones. So there is a large amount of information being piped through to us at any given time with various ways of quickly accessing it. Sound effects and (laughs) voices and, you know, things of that nature. Our A-Lady tells us a little joke when the mailbox opens. So we're sure that when it starts talking to us, we know we got our mail. It's kind of weird things like that. Story of our lives, though, isn't it? Always, there's always voices and always uh, yes. everywhere, sounds everywhere. And, yeah, the, if you're partially sighted, blind, you're always hearing voices. I don't know if, if that's, exactly. Uh, Sometimes it's so that. true. But uh, no, yeah. For for me, I've seen. I don't have the ring doorbell. My my mother in law thought it'd be nice to buy us one, and I don't even know how accessible it is. I let my wife kind of deal with this because I know ring would be accessible. I don't know about the one we got, Got Um, but I've seen things like for the mailbox, you know, ring definitely does offer that in the deal. Like you guys said, I've seen things that are even just a cheap little two-way sensor where it's maybe 50, $60 where you can just have the sensor in the mailbox and then the, the alert device in the house. And it's literally, it's just that two-way device. I mean, there are inexpensive ways to do that as well. If yes. you're not somebody looking to just completely ring doorbell your entire you know world. But I like that as a solution because like you guys said, any kind of smart device that you have, or your apps, your phones, you can get those notifications and you can, I'm sure, pair those down too. So it's not talking all the time. You know, you can yes. say, you know, certain things at my house, a sensor is nice for if someone's at the door, one of my, my daughter's friends, UPS driver, the mailman, somebody dropping off a package. Usually that's Amazon dropping off things or deer. We you know, have a lot of deer that kind of just wander through our front yard. So, Love it. so yeah, we, we get that notification quite a bit. Like there's <laughs> motion outside. Like, well, yeah, it's, it's a deer. So no, I, I like having those things, especially I, I wish that way back when I was, was single, you know, living on my own boy would have been nice to have sensors and a ring doorbell because i remember so many times somebody would come pounding on my door sometimes even late at night i had that happen a couple times where i'm sitting there it's you know 11 12 o'clock at night i'm watching tv getting kind of tired and someone's pounding on my door and i'm nervous to open the door because i can't see so i don't know who could this be who is this you know at this time of night and, you know, crack the door open. And a couple of times it wasn't even the right place. They were at the wrong door. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, no, you're looking for my neighbor. That's not me. You know, it's like, what? What, what are you doing? Right. But to have a doorbell where I could have just brought it up on my phone and said, who's there? You know, through the, the speaker on my phone, because the app allows you to do that through the, like, say, a ring doorbell or other brands. Mm-hmm. And I could have talked to them without having to unlock the door, without having to open the door. And so that sense of not just your privacy, not just your protection as far as, you know, having the camera and the recording, but to have that security of I don't even have to open the door and not worry here about can I see this person? Who are they going to be? Are they someone friendly? Are they maybe not? You know, and it just gives you a good peace of mind to to know 
I can just use my phone, use an app and be able to find out who it is at the door. If it's just somebody delivering something, if it's somebody that doesn't belong here, you know, my, my child's friends that leave us alone. No, I'm kidding. You know, just one of those kind of things. So the security of it, in addition to the privacy and, and all of that, gosh, I wish I had this, you know, 15 years ago or something where, you know, it was on my own now that, you know, I've got my wife and my daughter and neighbors that can keep an eye on us as well. It's still important. And I think it's still good for safety and security and your privacy, but boy, for that person who maybe lives alone or two people in the same household that are both blind, you know, perhaps, you know, to have that little bit of extra, as you said it, Chris, you know, the eyeballs on, on your world to protect you on the outside of your home with motion sensors, with cameras, with all kinds of things, just giving you that extra edge to be able to kind of even the playing field a little bit to know, okay, I can actually get some information about the outside of my home that I might not otherwise be able to get. And that's something that, you know, the outer smart home, I think is really, really good at being able to provide, especially to people that are partially sighted or blind. Absolutely. I know that when I was single and lived out in the country, I had no, I, you know, I had none of the stuff. I didn't have the security aspect. My smart home consisted of an air conditioner that worked with my A-Lady, a Google Home, an Alexa or six. Oh, see, there I go. And that was about it. You know, I had a, I had a couple of the Casa smart plugs. So I had a lamp that would turn on. I had things like that, but it was very, very low key. And coming here, you know, moving states and coming to the city, Chris was in Orlando for three days earlier this year. And it was the first time that I had been alone in the house for a significant period of time, you know, for overnight and, you know, a couple of days. And I felt so much more secure in the city with gazillions of neighbors around than I did in the country at home with virtually no neighbors around and did not have the smart security information that I had here. And it was just a much more, ah, you know, it was a, a better feeling to know that I have some eyes looking out for me, virtual though they may be, and I can find out the information, like you said to him, easily mm-hmm. to know exactly what's going on. If I don't know, I can find out, which is tremendously comforting. Such a great I don't know when mind. you all want to take raised hands, but you do have one. Go for it. Yeah, we can do that. Okay, Mallory, you can go ahead with your question. If you have an apartment, can you put this stuff in an apartment? Is that something that's feasible to do? There are some things that you might want to ask your apartment if you can do. Like if you wanted a thermostat, you would probably do that. If you wanted something like a do-it-yourself home security system, you probably don't have to ask the apartment because those are like sticky tape, two-sided sticky tape. You can throw up a couple sensors and stuff on your doors, windows, yeah. and things like that. So you could do that. But any anytime you're removing something, obviously, I would get the permission of the okay from your landlord. I've had security issues since about, like safety issues and stuff, since about 2016-ish. And I did have a security system on my very first apartment. It was through Comcast. Did I have sticky tape and all that? I don't remember, but I don't remember having any like disgusting sticky tape and all that junk. But I didn't have anything on the door per se, but it was just, I had cameras. Yeah, but they weren't accessible. And I did have people that hacked it. I know that for a fact. I do know people hacked it. Do I know who? I have a theory as to who it might have been, but I'm not 100% positive. And it scared me. I'm not going to lie. It scared me. But when I asked an agent 
at the company as to who did it or if someone did it. They told me it was none of my business. There's a whole rabbit hole there that we could probably go down because you might have had legal repercussion that you could have taken. And I don't know why they wouldn't have told you this, but I'm not an attorney, so I, I don't know. Right. But that said, I don't know about that situation and why they wouldn't do that. But right. I, I think as far as securing an apartment, I think Chris is right. I think the best way to do that is just approach your landlord, approach your apartment and to say, hey, I want to do this for my security, for my own protection and privacy. Can we talk about some options here? You know, like we were talking about before, if if you like say, I remember when I was last in a in an apartment building, we had our mm-hmm. own separate mailboxes, but they had keys on them. So they were locked, but sure. I could easily have put in even just the simplest sensor to let me know that the mail had arrived and that they had opened and closed my mm-hmm. door of my, you know, my keyed mailbox. And so that would have at least told me the mail's there. I can go down and get it uh, timely so that there's no other issue as far as a sensor on my door or a camera. I mean, typically uh, you know, most apartments don't have a doorbell, but, you know, even if they do or don't, you know, a lot of these things could be installed, but yeah, I think it's, it's a conversation just to have with the landlord. I can't see them really saying no, unless there's some major installation that's going to take place. And even then I, I can't see them really saying no, but like Chris said, if it's internal, like a thermostat or something, definitely ask. But yeah, as far as mounting cameras, I think that wouldn't be too hard. And as we said before, just make sure that whatever one you're using, you know, find out the accessibility of it. As we've talked about, the ring doorbells are, are really accessible and just secure those passwords, really lock those down. But I think it's a very fair and very good question because in an apartment, you are going to want to have that conversation with whoever owns your building. Just to make sure. But again, it comes down to your privacy and your security. And I would really uh, take issue with a person who would say, nope, you can't do it to have your own privacy and security in place. That would worry me, you know, like, no, I need to do this for me. And the, the whole idea of the sticky tape is that's what it's for. You don't even see it as somebody who's coming into your home. So if you, for example, have a motion detector on your wall, the tape is behind the motion detector. So it's not like anybody's going to see it. It looks like it's mounted to the wall and the sticky tape will actually stay up for years and years and years. And then you just pull it off and it doesn't take the wallpaper or anything with it. It just comes off the wall. Keeps you from having to drill holes in walls, which they might take issue to. Right. Right. And just the idea of having a camera that's visible and and mounted, even if it is with sticky tape, Mm -hmm. I know that that deters a friend of mine is is a police officer. And he's told me that just having the camera there, you might not even necessarily have it on, just having it there in plain sight of somebody that can see that can deter a lot of crime just by itself. So even having it working and recording just in case, God forbid, something does happen uh, is definitely good. Uh, Shayla or Shayla, I'm sorry if I butchered your name, but go ahead. I'm Shala. So you were very close. I was about five minutes late getting in. I apologize, and you may have covered this. But I heard someone say that the ring system is accessible. Are there other systems that are also accessible or not? I know the Google stuff is accessible as well. I haven't actually played with, but I've actually, like the hardware for the WISE stuff, I think it's W-Y-Z-E, that app is, is accessible but I haven't actually played with security hardware. I've got one of their vacuums and uh, everything is in the app's hub. So I would think because of that, that their stuff is accessible as well. And they're relatively inexpensive stuff too. And most of the time, even if 
something has an app that's not necessarily accessible or if it's mostly accessible enough that you can use it. Well, I, I was going to say nine times out of 10, but pretty much every time any of these smart devices we're talking about are going to work with your Amazon Echoes, your Google Smart homes, your, your Google Nest home, so that you can even just talk to it. So once it's set up, I mean, the setup process, that's another whole thing. But once it's set up, most of the functionality, some of it, maybe not, but most of it, you're going to be able to just talk to a smart device like a like an Echo or a Google Nest home and just be able to control things that way. So that by itself, as I always talk about smart devices like those, the, the A-Lady and, and et cetera, it's kind of accessibility by accident because they didn't really necessarily design it for us. However, it just kind of worked out that way. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, even if you find an app that's kind of accessible or mostly accessible, a lot of what you're going to be able to do with them can be used with those smart devices and make it accessible. The only thing I would caution, and I do this every single time I even talk about disarming like a security system with your voice mm -hmm. is that unless you have to i probably wouldn't because if you're doing it so many times and some neighbor hears you and you have an open window and they hear your oh disarm my alarm oh what's the password one two three four thank you <laughs> now i have your password <laughs> you can do it i know at least with the echo the alexa stuff they you actually have to make a conscious effort to turn that feature on. You can arm it with your voice, but disarming it, you have to, you actually have to tell them you want to disarm it with your voice for that reason. Thank you. Just to put a bow on that. I mean, a lot of these things, most of the time you have to have a, an account to be able to log into the app to check accessibility, but sometimes you can get a feel for an app, just downloading the app and kind of, you know, feeling it out before even getting the device. I've done that with a couple of different things and you can almost tell right off the bat, this isn't going to be very accessible, even, even whether you can log in or not and contact the developers. I know we all, I know. Chris and Kim do this on their on their shows and, and their talks. I do all the time. Don't be afraid to talk to a developer. If you find something that you're like, I really like this and the app seems like it's mostly accessible, but boy, if it just had these one or two things, go to the bottom there and find their contract information and, and just yeah. don't ever feel afraid to contact the developer and ask because sometimes they may just not realize. They may just not understand. And so many times I've, I've had experiences where people or even myself have contacted a developer and they're grateful. They're happy. They're like, wow, I could do this and this and that simply I could make my app accessible. Wow. Okay. And they do it. So uh, it's very rare that I actually find somebody who's not willing to work with somebody to make it accessible. Kobe is a perfect example of that. When I first started looking into uh, accessible thermostats or that kind of thermostat, I contacted them and one of their developers gave me his username and password so that I could check out the hardware that was connected. Unfortunately, at the time, I had to return the device because there was really no way for me to access the device other than speaking to it. But they've made major, major, major enhancements mm -hmm. in their accessibility. So that's just another thing to keep in mind. And sometimes your internet friends and on mailing lists and stuff like that somebody could answer the age-old question, is it accessible? Because of my Kobe story, I didn't really want to go with it again. And I heard from a highly respected friend of mine, I didn't know he had the Kobe stuff, and he goes, yeah, now it's 100% now it's accessible. So 
was like, huh, okay, good, because that was the one that I really wanted to go with. And now we have it and we love it. Is that the one that's built into our security or security systems built in? No. We've got so much stuff. He keeps up with all the all the minutia of our stuff. The ring is connected to the router. The, the ring, ring. Because, you know, the, the new the new ring, you know, ties into the alarm system. Then we've got the Ecobee for our thermostat. And so we can definitely testify to the accessibility of those things using both iOS and Android, correct? Yes. So guys, I'm trying to think of other outside things, but I think we've covered quite a bit of it. Motion sensors. We've talked a little bit about light sensors, doorbells, mailbox. Sprinklers. Sprinklers. <laughs> sprinklers. Yeah, he wants well, yeah, a sprinkler I mean, next. Technically, yeah, I mean, you can get smart sprinklers. I was reading recently. Now they're very expensive, but yes. there's a smart lawnmower out there. Oh, um, gosh. Where you <laughs> can control that. And it uses the same technology as, you know, the, the vacuums and things that are smart inside. So they'll oh. learn your lawn and cut your grass for you. But those are very expensive right now um but when it gets it down in price i might have to look at those but but yes i mean there's a lot of those kind of things to do outside um you guys want to move inside because i sure i I can't think of anything else outside yeah yeah outside is outside is a little trickier in terms of some of this stuff but don't forget your your little switches that you can always plug in to control this stuff like floodlights and like you know all these lights you can turn on and off and schedule and you know at least for the casa stuff i can't speak for the rest of it but Excuse me, I know that is very accessible. The app's very accessible. It's just very nice. 2015 of you, manual control? How dare you? No. I know. Uh, (laughs) I had to think of a date to throw at that. I know, right? right? Yeah. Yeah, It's like, what was that? I know that talking about going on, you know, going inside, a friend of mine actually just purchased the Amazon microwave. And it's a smaller microwave, so it's not like is your larger ones that you would mount, say, above your your oven, you know, the larger capacity. It's a little bit smaller, like an apartment-sized microwave, but it still does a really good job. It doesn't have the smarts necessarily built in to talk to you right from the microwave, but it does work with an Amazon Echo device. And he's loving it because he can actually just say to his Echo, verbal controls for his microwave, he doesn't have to worry about putting bump dots. I mean, he does have some just in case, of course, is that manual control backup we were talking yep, about um, or getting an overlay. Actually, I take that back. He, he didn't have to do bump dots. I, I lie. He told me something I didn't know that actually Amazon offers a Braille overlay. So 99 uh, cents, 99, 99 cents. cents. It's yes. all yours. Mm-hmm. He had to actually reorder his because the first order he didn't include it and they had to have him do a full reorder, which was oh, wow. wow. <laughs> well, but he hadn't had it shipped yet. So it was oh, okay. They just canceled one order and had to redo the second one because they put the overlay on for him, I guess, before they shipped it. And so it, it did have a Braille overlay, which I thought was fantastic. And then, yeah, he just talks to his Echo and can utilize the microwave completely by voice. And to me, that, I mean, that's a star of anything for a kitchen because it's not very expensive, really. I mean, compared to a larger full-size you know, type microwave, I think I might lie, but they're maybe what, $150, I think, or two. It's the same one we have, the Smart Oven. It was about- Smart yeah, Oven's a little bit bigger. Yeah, yes. Smart Oven's bigger. Okay, so you just because yeah, okay. it's got a conventional oven plus microwave. So, yep. but it's the same idea that you can just talk to your Echo device and control that, and and not have to you know necessarily touch any buttons. I mean, you have the Braille mm-hmm. overlay if you get that, or bump dots if you want to use that. But I like the idea of just being able to talk to it. And there are ovens, there are stoves 
that you can get that you can talk to to set and for me that's a big game changer to be able to set a temperature to be able to set the temperature properly because i've always in the past an oven had to turn the dial and have like a bump dot to where it's going to tell me okay this is 350 or this mm-hmm. is 450 you know, 100, you know degrees and to be able to just have an oven that you can talk to or a microwave that you can talk to that you don't have to worry about presets so i guess you guys said you have the conventional oven so you could probably talk about that better than i could we, yeah, we, we do we we air fry in it that's its main joy in our house is air frying in it we love it it takes a little longer. We were going to repl- we had a, a little bit of a disaster with our last air fryer and we were going to replace it. And we started talking about it and going, you know, it's worth just keeping what we've got in terms of our Amazon because we know it already does it. And we're just going to use it for now. And, you know, we don't need anything in five minutes. It's okay. It takes longer to air fry with it, but it does an awesome job. You can put in your chicken or your fish or, you know, whatever it is that you want to use and you're golden. And like you said, just talk to it. Or I know one instance we had a day where it wasn't working. So I just went over and used the Braille overlay and had that thing going in two seconds. And, you know, it's it works. So it's a great little experience. Like you could tell it. You could say air fry chicken nuggets it'll say how many or how much do they weigh and you tell them you tell it and it just starts the air fry process or the microwave you could say microwave mozzarella sticks so it even knows kind of sort of what you want to do and can set the the temperature and everything itself or of course you can go the manual route and and go ahead and, and do it yourself and you know, know exactly what you want to do there. So if it's something you aren't quite as sure of, we had something one time, I think it was, it was a turkey burger or something. And we were like, what? I don't know exactly what we're doing here. So we chose to do that one a little differently. I think we, I think we did a temperature or we did a time. I don't remember exactly how we did it. We kind of experimented with it to figure it out because we didn't want to ruin them. And we had a suspicion that we needed to cook it slightly different, big turkey versus other things. So we played with that a little bit and we got it right, but it is a great little device. I was very skeptical that I inherited most of my, my uh, smart house. So, you know, I got here and I was like, okay, you know, what, what am I going to really think of this? And uh, yeah, it's great. It's a very handy device. And especially like you were saying, Tim, earlier about people who perhaps have mobility issues or motor issues that make some of this stuff more difficult, then it's so much easier than, than dealing with the overlay or dealing with the, that oven knob to be able to say, you know, set a temperature for 350 or set a time for this to air fry this or bake this or whatever it is. Yeah, I think a great combination for a kitchen, and like you said, it spans multiple types of disability, having a smart microwave slash oven, you know, combination, perhaps uh, that you can talk to a device like that, having a talking measuring cup. I've actually got one that's a big, huge cup and it's got a base on it that will basically it works as a, a scale. You flip it between dry contents or wet contents, you know, liquid contents, and it'll tell you how much is in there. So having that where I can just set the big bowl or big cup down on it, It'll tell me, you know, the weight of it. So it'll say, you know, that's two cups or however many ounces. And then, you know, having that working with the smart microwave, smart oven combined with, I would even say, especially for people that have uh, limited or low vision, the Echo Show made by Amazon or even, I mean, Facebook's got one as well, but the Echo Show can actually work great in a kitchen because if you've got some vision, 
you can pull up your recipes, you can pull up, you know, different things to help you so that you can be hands-free. So, you know, I know when I was growing up, my mom had her huge, big Betty Crocker cookbook and it had, you know, <laughs> caked on dried like bits of, of pancake <laughs> batter and cookie batter or whatever on it. You know, you pull the pages apart kind of thing, which is awesome and gives me great memories. But to be able to have, if you've got some vision, you can see a screen and put uh, something like the, like I said, they call the Echo Show. So you can get that in a variety of different screen sizes and just have it on your countertop. That again would help you in a kitchen scenario where you can have, you know, the recipe up, you can have the the device right there to talk to it, to ask about recipes or about uh, ingredients, things like that. I really love that kind of combination in the kitchen to be able to help somebody, like I said, whether you're, you're fully blind or you're partially sighted, whatever, or as you mentioned, having other disabilities. My uncle has Parkinson's and so it's hard for him to use his hands because they're shaking and, mm-hmm. and cramping and things like that. So for him, something that he can actually just talk to is so much nicer instead of having to try to fumble with buttons or you know switches and things like that because of the Parkinson's, how it affects his his hands. So yeah, it's a, it's a great combination to have. Absolutely. Or if you have a Amazon Fire tablet, that can kind of serve the same purpose as the Echo Show too. Just have it there and exactly. you've got A-Lady enabled in it and you can use your screen and it serves as the, the virtual Betty Crocker cookbook. Mallory has her hand raised again. Yes, Mallory. I actually have a couple questions. I have a vacuum cleaner question. I know you mentioned something about the vacuum cleaners in the beginning of this whole presentation. Can the smart vacuum cleaners go up and down stairs? No. No, that's their one drawback. I didn't think so. (laughs) No, unfortunately. But they go places uh, that you forget to. They totally do. They get all the dust bunnies under the bed. You mentioned something just now about the Echo Show and the Echo this and the Echo that. Are they with the recipes and this and that? Is the screen and this and that? Does does the A-Lady thing read the recipes to you? Yes, it does. Sorry, I can't hear you. My oh. voiceover is reading. Oh, yes. I was just saying, yes, it, it will read it out loud to you. So you just say, you know, what are, you know, what is the recipe for, you know, whatever it might be, um, or how many eggs do I need to make this or, you know, whatever you want to ask it. And uh, yeah, it's going to be able to give you that information. And if you if you don't have the one with the screen, like we were talking about either a tablet or the Echo Show, even just mm-hmm. the regular uh, Amazon Echo, you can ask it those general questions and get verbal feedback. What's nice for somebody that might have some you know vision is that it can actually just have it written out on the screen. It'll even have pictures typically of of what you know of, of what it might look like in a cookbook, for example. Basically, mm-hmm. take a cookbook page and put it right there on the screen. But mm-hmm. it's not necessary. I just mentioned it as something that if somebody has some vision. Because I have vision. Okay. Yeah. If you have vision, then the screen aspect of it is is very helpful, but it still will, uh, of course, read it out loud so that you can actually hear it as well. Because I, I wasn't sure. That's why I asked. Yep. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Thank well, yeah, you. For, you're welcome. Now, for the vacuums, guys, like there's different, so many different types. Like you can get some that are just vacuums or just mops or that do both. Um, but what I like about that is if you either have them individual, you know, they can either do one or the other or both. You have that option and that can help you with a price point. But even like the ones that do both, I mean, they get pretty smart because I know, well, let me back up. We've got a one that would just do like hardwood, linoleum, you know, just the mopping. And it's 
finally programmed itself. I shouldn't say finally, it makes it sound like it took forever, but it didn't. It, it's able to program itself to know, okay, if I go beyond this line, that's a living room that's got carpet. Don't go there. And it will actually, you know, the, the mopping one, you know, will learn just stay over here where I can mop the floor, mop, you know, the, the linoleum or uh, go in the bathroom. Like you were saying, Kim, they go in places that you are either able to sometimes get to really easily or don't remember to get to really easily those hard to reach places. So like the ones that do the mopping, they get really, they're really good at getting like underneath and behind the toilet in the bathroom. Yes. Um, getting that stuff. That's like, you know, if you've got an open sink, like open underneath your sink, say maybe you don't have a, a cabinet or something underneath a sink, um, you know, like a pedestal type sink or something. It's really good at getting around the base mm-hmm. of that uh, or, or the corners of a cabinet, you know, like on the, on the, you know, uh, edged corners of a, of a sink or around the toilet, just those areas that are just really hard to get into. And again, it comes down to mobility, vision, all kinds of different scenarios that you can say, yeah, this is so helpful. And you can use an app for that. You can say, you know, set it for a time where it's, you know, once a day or twice a day, or, you know, have a time, you know, once or twice a week, whatever schedule you want to tell it through the app or even through a, an, you know, a smart device, like an echo, you know, get on this schedule and do this, or even just do it whenever you want it to do it. You know, the kids just come running through the house with mud everywhere and you need to <laughs> need everything swept up and mopped up or whatever, and just have it do it, you know, whenever you need to. And then the ones for the carpet, very similar where they will learn and they'll be able to get, I mean, mm-hmm. ours gets uh, like, we have a coffee table that's got kind of an open end, like underneath the coffee table, a little bit of an open area and it can get right up alongside that and really get in there uh, and right up, right up to the couch, you know, and, and right to the base of the couch and really, you know, get, get in there and do that. So those I think are, so beneficial. Again, when I was single, boy, I wish I had these things. This just <laughs> would have made my life so much easier. Ours actually goes under the couch because it's so high up. So it'll it'll actually vacuum under the couch and go behind. The- we'll stop hearing her and we'll go. We named her Rosie because she's our she's our Roomba and she's our you know obviously our 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 maid if you will. So we're like, where's where's Rosie from the Jetsons? Where is she? Where'd she? Oh, she's under the couch. She's still under the couch. Okay, she's been there like five minutes. What is she doing? Yeah. <laughs> is she stuck or is she really working hard? Exactly. Yeah. exactly. What is she doing? And that's the other cool thing about them. If if you are totally blind like both of us are you can say ask you know a lady ask Roomba to find Rosie and eventually she'll start making cute little sounds and eventually you can find her if she's gotten stuck or she stopped or she's lost her charge and you need to take her home yourself so you know that's a good thing yeah there's so many cool things like that I can't remember what it's called maybe you guys know what it's called but I know going from the floors up a little bit there's a for lack of a better term, like a spider thing yeah. that you can get. I've seen it in action and I've talked to people that have it. I unfortunately don't have one yet, but you put it on your window and it, it walks your window like a spider and cleans the glass for you. Yeah. Oh yeah. I want one of those for sure. I want one so bad. That's just, that's awesome because it's again, especially if you have high windows, tall windows, or, you know, you just, can't if you're you know visually impaired and you can't see you know did i leave a film behind is it is it look okay did i reach all the corners you know the nooks and crannies and mm-hmm. it just does it for you and, and literally just crawls the window like a spider to make sure the windows are done which 
again, is just something that's just so very, very helpful. Again, I, I apologize that I can't remember what the name of that is, but I'm sure if you Google clean windows with a sp- <laughs> smart spider clean or windows robot type of thing. Yeah, yeah something. exactly. <laughs> They have all kinds, but then now you guys, did you say at the beginning, you guys have a smart washer and dryer? We have a washer. We ha- our, our dryer is not smart. They are not a matched pair, unfortunately, but our washer is very cool because we always know when the wash is done. I have attempted to teach my spouse in almost a year of marriage that you don't wash everything necessarily on the same setting. So it's really nice to be able to change stuff up either through the app or by talking to your a lady or whomever to make that happen so it can do all those things is really really cool we really like you know there for a while i might be wrong on this but i think it was ge was making a box that you could attach to a lot of their washers and or dryers to make them accessible Um, and that was a while back and it was just an attachment that you would put on them to make them smart and they would actually talk to you but quite a few of them now just have it built in right Uh, i've Mm -hmm. I've looked at this we don't have a smart washer or dryer we have looked at them and i know that a lot of the apps are really accessible and uh, even some of the buttons you can actually make sure that they're more tactile you can still of course use a bump dot to help that but you can get them even more tactile but quite a few are are smart now aren't they we've got a an lg and i put a couple bump dots on the lg the power on button and the start button, and then it's this thing. I don't know who designed this, but there's a button you have to press and hold in order to turn on the smart features. Then you can go into the app and you can change all the settings and stuff like that. You have to turn that smart feature on, and then if you turn it off, then you have to go back and turn the smart feature <laughs> back on. So. A but, at point, but at that point, it then just works kind of like controlling the yes. smart oven and the microwave. Exactly. Where you're just telling it. Of course, you still have to sadly do the manual labor of putting the clothes you in do. and moving yes, them. Exactly. Well, you need a robot for that. But once you've done that, you could just either talk to your, your smart device or your app to say, set it for this, do it on cold or do it on hot or this if, cycle, that cycle. If our washer and dryer were a matched pair, when I didn't notice at the time, if they were a matched pair... The washer, when it's done, could set the dryer depending on how wet your clothes are. <laughs> oh, no, that's it's, awesome. it's insane. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, insane. the washer was, well, they were, they were both wedding presents. So you can only do so much there. It didn't quite work out the way we You can't <laughs> say to planned. your mom, you want an extra $200 for this dryer. <laughs> for that... this dryer that's a smart pair to this washer. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to when we All can right. upgrade. We have a couple raised hands. More questions? Okay. All right. Nora, you can go ahead with your question. Yeah, hi, I'm Nora from Phoenix, Arizona, and I want to ask you, with a mopping, with a ro- mopping robot, do you have to put in certain amount of water, amount of water in there to make it work? How do we do ours? We don't. That's a Tim question. Well, you can get them that have wells that you can put a little water in. I actually like, we've got one where it's just a pad. So if you're familiar with like a Swiffer, where you put the pads on the bottom and then you can you know, squirt out the, the liquid or even have it on the pad. It works the same way. So if you get one that's just solely for hardwood floors or linoleum, you know, tile floors, depending on what you're wanting it to do, you change the pad. And so you can get one that's going to actually be just for the hardwood floor. So it's going to more dust and polish kind of, you know, as you would on a hardwood floor. If you're doing linoleum or you like the bathroom floor, you can switch it to a wet pad. And so you just pop this thing open. I mean, it's, it's actually not really hard. Once you find the button, you, you push the button, it, it opens up, and then you insert the wet pad, just like you would say maybe for like a Swiffer. And then 
it will go and do that floor using that wet pad and and you just change those out. And th- those really, honestly, when you look at it, cause I think a box of those, I can't remember how many you get, but it's like, I don't know, six, $7, seven, $8, something like that. And you get a box of however many, probably like 10 or something, I think. And you just pull it back out, throw it away and use another one the next time or whatever. But you can get them where you put some water in, but I really like the ones that it's just as easy as switching a pad. So you don't have to worry about trying to get something out and and using water and putting it in there, knowing did I get the level right? I always have that with my CPAP machine. Uh, Anybody that uses a CPAP, you've got to get the water in there and fill it to the line and, you know, use the distilled water. And I'm never sure if I got it right, just right. I I finally have kind of figured it out, but getting one that when you look at them and you research them or you ask somebody to store, you know, just say, I want one that's simple that can you know, just swap out a, a pad, you know, theater for dry or for wet and uh, it makes it so much easier. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, Mallory, go ahead with the question. Do they have any like smart garbage shampooer thingies? I don't know. They need a smart bissel. That would be cool. I know they have the smart vacuum cleaners, but what about the carpet shampooer thingamajiggers? That's good question. question. Yeah, that is a good question. I, I don't, don't know. That's think smart I've ever seen one. I know, like you said, yeah, there's definitely <laughs> vacuums, mops. I've never seen one that's a carpet shampooer. Not saying that there isn't one, but yeah, I to be honest, I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> but I've not I've not seen one, so I, I don't know. Well, you don't know, you don't know. <laughs> you don't know unless you ask. And exactly. I- so I true. see a letter being written to Bissell. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Because I would think that one of the companies that makes the, the vacuum cleaners would come up with the carpet shampooer or they would add it to the the vacuum and that would make sense exactly mm-hmm. i'm not going to say that it isn't possible because it probably is and it's probably out there and we just don't know about it but it could also be one that maybe is more difficult just because it's got to do different functions and multiple functions but that said i mean like i was talking about with the one that does the different tiling and floors it knows what to do so i don't see why it wouldn't be possible so yeah we'll have to earmark that one I have to look that up <laughs> all right chris kim and tim <laughs> i'm gonna refer to you from now on <laughs> i want to thank you guys all for being here i especially want to thank chris and kim for helping us out kind of last minute we had uh, some changes in the program and they had an opening this afternoon so thank you guys for spending part of your afternoon with us so for those of you that didn't join us yesterday we have been scattering throughout our program members speaking out about what the Arizona Council and and ACB have done for them, what they mean to them. And so we are having three more members scattered through today's program. I will be the next one. So my name for those of you that just joined, I'm Melanie Sanoe. I live in Phoenix currently, and I have been involved in ACB since I was 10 years old. I went to my first meeting in the great state of Texas, And ACB since then has become what I call a family. So friends who are family, it's not a typo. Um, And I think that's a common theme that we've seen through the members that we heard from yesterday and the members that we will still hear from today. Growing up in ACB in Texas, in West Virginia, in California, and finally making it to Arizona, this family has been truly that. Some have been at my college graduation. Some have been at my wedding. There's just this camaraderie and, you know, a group of people that understand you. And having just gotten active in Arizona's council two years ago when I met John at the 2020 National Convention virtually, 
I've only met one person involved in Arizona's council this whole time. And yet I have been able to develop those relationships and those connections where I can pick up the phone and call a myriad of our members to socialize, to get advice from, to find resources from. And I just consider myself very, very lucky to be a part of Arizona's council, to be a part of the previous uh, state affiliates, um, some of the special interest affiliates. But I think of anything, it's just a wonderful, warm and welcoming place that again, I've, I've met one person <laughs> and you would think that we have known each other for years and years and years with how welcoming and open everyone is. And I think in every affiliate and, and even, you know, especially here in the moment, you know, I've been able to over the years develop those leadership skills, um, fine tune other skills that turn out to be transferable between uh, ACB and, and these affiliates and work and social life, et cetera. So I, I just can't speak enough for the, the camaraderie, the connections, the family that I have found here in Arizona. So thank you, Arizona. All right, everybody. So our next program is about employment access for veterans and the blind and visually impaired and an introduction to smart cane technology. So I would like to introduce Ed Hankler, the founder of The Blind Guide and a man who's dedicated to helping people thrive with vision loss. Ed, welcome. I think you can do a better job of <laughs> telling us all about you, but thank you for being here. Thank you, Melanie. It's it's an honor to be here and a pleasure. So I'm sorry I can't join all of you in person, but obviously it's virtual for everyone. So I'm joining you from South Carolina right now. I want to give you a bit of background about me. That'll explain how I've gotten involved in the things that I'm in and why I have the certain passions I do. And I'm going to try to draw ties as I talk, not just to veterans, not just to people who have lost their sight or with other disabilities, but really to everyone, because I think there's a real crossover. I was listening to some of the smart home technology. A lot of that technology would be great whether you can see or can't see. And I think that's the beautiful thing about companies that recognize the value and the design around people with disabilities, including blindness or vision impairment. I think you create better solutions for everyone. Uh, I also think it's very important to, to employ people that fit into those demographics. They make a team stronger. And I'm going to hit on that before we get to the end. But my background is I spent 10 years in the nuclear power Navy uh, early in my career, spent another 21 years at Merck Pharmaceuticals. And this is going to be the first tie I draw to that, in this case, the 70% unemployment stat. I had been employed throughout my life. There was one day I was unemployed in 31 years, and that's when I drove from North Carolina up to the Philly suburbs to join Merck. I was early retired. I, that was their euphemism. I would call it unemployed at the time. At age 52, I, I stumbled a lot trying to get reemployed. I wasn't fighting vision loss. I wasn't fighting other disabilities and still made a lot of mistakes. I've learned an awful lot since then. And those are some of the things I want to share with you. And there's some of the things I share on the blind guide also, because I think anyone who's blind or visually impaired brings the potential for tremendous assets to a team, cognitive diversity, other things like that, which again, I'll return to. So you need to find a way to sell that. But even when you aren't fighting things like that, it can be very easy to stumble and, and struggle to get back on back on the horse, whatever euphemism you want. So while I was at Merck, my mom lost her sight to age-related macular degeneration. I, at least for now, am sighted. Certainly, there's a genetic component to AMD, and I have my eyes checked annually. 
It's my hope that I always retain my vision. And it's my hope if I don't, that I can do even half as well as some of the people I'm going to tell you about and probably as many of you doing. Because there are a lot of people out there thriving with vision loss. Uh, But I recognize it's not easy, uh, even from the perspective of a caregiver. I know it's not easy. I want to tell you about my mom and the journey that she went through. But before I do that, I really focus, my whole blind guide is focused on thriving with vision loss. And I distinguish that from surviving. Surviving to me is sitting in an apartment, not doing a whole lot, but maybe being safe, maybe living independently. But that's not thriving. Thriving is when you're getting out, you're doing things, you're employed if you're of employment age, you're playing golf, you're playing beat baseball, you're doing whatever it is, you're doing essentially anything you would do if you're sighted. That to me is thriving. And there are examples of people that are doing a lot more than what I just said there. So I'm not going to really go into them because I think a lot of you may know the name, but there's a gentleman named Eric Weinmeyer. Amazing things he's accomplished. He's blind and he has climbed the seven tallest peaks. So pretty amazing accomplishment. Uh, and the first blind person to do it, one of maybe 150 people in the world at the time when he did it. There's another person that's a little bit closer to home for me. I'm a Naval Academy graduate. There's a gentleman there a graduate from well after me named Brad Snyder. He lost his sight to an IED in Afghanistan. And one year to the day after he lost his sight, and he lost it catastrophically. He has two prosthetic eyes at this point. One year to the day after he lost his sight, he won swimming gold medals and set world records at the London Paralympics. So just two examples there, people doing astounding things. Now, if you're like me, you may say, well, that's pretty cool, but they're one in a million. And I would agree, that's the nature of being a Paralympian or an Olympian. It's, it's a very small funnel and very few people there. But let's get a little less exotic in that. So I did a blog post about a year, year and a half ago about a professor at the school where my younger daughter went, University of Vermont. This woman had to have some routine surgery. She was sighted. She had routine surgery. She went into the operating room. And the picture that I put on the blog post is of somebody looking up at some doctors about to do a procedure. A couple hours later, when she woke up, she was completely blind. Uh, There had been a mistake with the oxygen flow to her while during the surgery, starved her optic nerves and completely, again, 100% blinded her. Six months later, she was teaching college courses again. So that's a catastrophic loss. And she recovered from it and returned to doing exactly what she did. And she actually now probably vacations more than she used to. And her only accommodation is she now takes a friend along to help her in an unfamiliar location. But otherwise, she's doing everything that uh, that she was doing before. You may say, eh, college professor, so maybe a little smarter than the average person. So I'm going to get to my mom. And that's not to disparage her, but she wasn't a college professor. She was not a college graduate. Uh, She was a stay-at-home mom who who raised me. She couldn't work a tape recorder. So she was at the the far end on the non-techie scale. But we moved her from Florida, where she was living at the time, up to the Philly suburbs when she lost her sight to AMD. That was the early 1990s. There were no treatments, no effective treatments at that point. We found an association for the blind, and I can't say enough about associations for the blind, and I include Council of the Blind and Lighthouses and all the variations on that. Amazing people, amazing resources. I think about Melanie's testimony when she was talking about her, her friend friend universe. Friend, I, I, don't, I don't quite have it right, but the, the, the friend, friendly. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So, 
that's what it is. It's a support system, and it's a very knowledgeable support system. This Association for the Blind restored my mom's independence. And she was a completely, well, she's my mom, obviously, special, therefore. But in the global scheme, she was a completely average person. She traveled outside the country for the first time in her life after losing her sight. She became a speaker for the association, something she would never have done before. And she used to take Philly Rapid Transit all over. We used to, once a year, she'd go down to the Philadelphia Flower Show. And if anybody has ever been there, it's just a madhouse. It's an intimidating setting if you're sighted. As somebody who's blind, an impossible setting. But she'd go down there and probably grab too many arms and ask for too much assistance, but she'd go down and have a ball. So a very, a person with an average background, absolutely thriving. So I'm convinced you can thrive with vision loss. I'm equally convinced it's very hard. It's, it's not an easy path. Uh, but it's very possible. And as I said at the beginning, it's my hope if I ever face vision loss that I'm able to do as well as people such as I'm telling you about and yourselves. But don't settle for, for surviving. It's, uh, that's not the way you want to live. And there's no need to do it. Moving on, and you'll find something if you go to my website, and I think Melanie has or will be sharing all the information. If you go to my website, I have a thriving levels chart that I made up, kind of a thermometer like you see when somebody's raising money for a charity or other things like that. And I started at level one, and that's probably the longest and most difficult level, but that's when you're learning all the basics. You've lost your sight. Now you're learning O&M. You're, learning, you're going through the vision rehab process. You're learning how to use the, 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 the textured paint and other things like that, basically relearning every skill that you took for granted before. So it's going to take a while. And then you go to level two where you start to get out and do some things. Somewhere around level three or four, you're now able to do whatever you want to do. And I like what Melanie said about the friends and family aspects of a council of the blind. But I remember something that I heard the people with the Association for the Blind in Philly say to me. And that was, I don't want to do things with a bunch of blind people. I want to do things with the same friends I did before I lost my sight. And it's one of those things that ought to be intuitively obvious, but as a, I'll call it an outsider, I guess I didn't think about that. I used to take my mom down to the Association for the Blind so she could be around a lot of other people who were struggling with the same thing she was and get their support, their understanding, their knowledge and all of that. And I think that's important. But at the end of the day, she didn't want to associate with a lot of, she didn't want to do all of her fun things with a lot of people that she didn't know. She wanted to do the same thing she always did with the same people that she did them with. And that's why eventually she loved the Philadelphia Phillies. And they're a hard team to lose, to love since they seem to lose a lot. But <laughs> she, she loved them. And she wanted to go to one of the games. I said, well, why do you want to go to the game? You can't see anything. It's like, yes, I can tell you what's going on. I missed the whole point there because you walk into the stadium. Well, what do you smell? You smell these intoxicating really unhealthy choice, food choices that are just amazing. They're part of it. And because it's in the Philly area or the Baltimore area where we go to the Baltimore Warriors, it's a lot of Old Bay. It's a lot of shrimp. It's a lot of crab. It's barbecue. Delicious. Don't need to see to smell that. You have the sounds of the game, the excitement, the crowds. So I was missing the whole point. I, I viewed her as somebody that could never see that little baseball and figure out where I was traveling and missed how much more experience there was there. So... It's back to that thing. Learn to thrive with blindness. And uh, you'll read about people on my blog, if you do it, who learn to surf after they lost their sight, who have learned to play golf after losing their sight, just kind of goes on and on. So my theme there is thriving. That's what you get on my blog. So I mentioned 
that I struggled when I lost my my uh, job at Merck. And I did. For three years, I did some consulting in biopharma, but really didn't have a lot of meaningful work. And then somewhere along the way, people said, you know, when you talk about blindness, you just come alive. And I went home. Three people said it in the space of about a month. I went home after the third person. I looked at my wife and I said, I think the universe is yelling at me. I just need to change my pitch. And I switched that day from telling somebody all the great things they could do in in biopharma to saying, I want to help people thrive with vision loss. And that was an area of passion. So I spent 31 years doing things I was proud of, the Navy, Merck, but not passionate about. Hoping people thrive with blindness is a passion for me. I I love what I'm doing. I I think it makes a difference. I watched it make a huge difference for my mom and anybody I can help. There's a young man that I mentor who was sitting, I think this is not an unfamiliar story, although he was rather remarkable. So he was sitting at home with his parents at age, I guess, 25 or 26. He was one course away from graduating from Princeton, and he had given up. And he was sitting at home, and he was unemployed. He was not a college graduate, although he only had one more course. He was not employed, and he was living at home with no earnings. And his parents asked me to mentor him. And I, I the, the story was long, but eventually I agreed to do that. Within six months, he had graduated from Princeton. He has now taken a job as a CPA with an accounting firm. He's been early promoted three times, and he's two-thirds of the way through a master's in taxation. So yeah, he's a smart kid. I'm I'm not going to take that away from him. But he was home and hopeless. So no matter how smart he was, he had given up. And he changed. And he's he's living an amazing life with meaningful employment, very meaningful employment uh, now, and and just on his way up. And they absolutely love him at the business. And you know what? They're going to hire somebody else who's blind in the future because they found out that it doesn't make any difference. And he's actually a wonderful resource. So That's kind of a roundabout way. So I changed my pitch. I said, I want to help people thrive with vision loss. Within a week, I started working at a UPenn spinoff that was developing some very cool assistive technology, and it was indoor navigation. So I'm sure any of you that use technology are familiar with GPS and all the things it does for you outside. You're going to know equally that the indoor solutions are not as good. They're getting better, but most of them still depend on beacons and Wi-Fi and other things like that that can be very inconsistent. This group out of UPenn was beaconless navigation. It was based on a lot of really smart computer vision and artificial intelligence and that sort of thing. So really cool, really cool, smart people. And unfortunately, we didn't make it. We were a startup that failed. But I said at that point, you know what? That was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I wish we had made it the whole way, but I learned a lot. Why do I help? companies developing assistive technology around the world. I've been on a big company side. I've been nonprofit. I've been in startups. Maybe I can help one or two more companies through the funnel. And because of that, I got involved, and this is where the smart canes come in. I got involved with 10 or 11 companies, and I was really having a lot of fun. It's a smart cane. The one I'll tell you about was developed in Turkey by people who are blind. There was a smartphone out of Israel, also developed by people that are blind. There was a tactile tablet that came out of Slovenia. I don't know what their ratio of blind to sighted was, but a uh, but wonderful technology. And then different technology here in the U.S. So I had an awful lot of fun with that. I'm, I wasn't the smart guy. I was always the strategic planner or the ops guy, but I was having a lot of fun. And I was earning nothing. So um, my continuing journey of unemployment after after a lot of years of employment I was really having fun and I was learning about technology I'm going to share with all of you. And then at the end of the day, I said, I need to shift. I do, I do want to get paid something. 
I'm going to try to get employers to pay me and I can therefore help the people that I want to help the people that are on the people such as you on this call. We have a hand raised. Oh, please go ahead. Mallory, you can unmute. Consider starting your own company. I have started my own company, I, I, which is the blind guide. It's an LLC. But I can't say I committed it to it until much further along. And I think that's just because I was a big company guy that wasn't used to, to the entrepreneurial aspects. It's a good suggestion. And I write about franchises a lot because they may not be for everybody, but they're a great way to start your own company with a kickstart. Do you have experience with that, Mallory? Do I? No, I don't. But I'm looking for work as we speak. So if you ever need help, I'd be more than happy to help you. Well, let me return that offer and say I'm more than happy to help you also. Please feel free to reach out. As I said, I think you either have or will have all the contact information. And this applies to all of you. I have an extensive LinkedIn network. If anybody wants to connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm happy to make introductions. I'm happy to help however I can um, and, and can help in a lot of different directions. So happy to talk to you afterwards, Mallory. Any other questions before I go? No, not at this time. Okay. So we get into this assistive technology. Oh, so just concluding that thought, I want to get companies to pay me who believe in hiring people with disabilities. And my passion is around people who are blind, but really the societal issues, the unemployment issues are so similar. I just call it people with disabilities to help them and companies that believe in hiring them as well as hiring veterans and military spouses. So that's where I've shifted to over the last year and a half or so. And those are the things that I'll bring you before before the end of the hour. So let me go on the assistive technology. That was part of what was advertised in the agenda in terms of what I'd cover. Some of you may know this, but rather than trying to find out how many know, let me just kind of go through each one of these. And you'll learn about more of each one of these, both in the information Melanie will share, but also on my website. So there's a group of folks who are blind in Turkey, and actually they've partnered with a number of folks who are blind in England, and they created a cane called the We Walk Cane, W-E-W-A-L-K, just as one word, the We Walk Cane. And it does some very cool things. Number one, it detects obstacles from about waist height up to seven feet. And that range is based on how you hold the cane. It's not anything magic beyond that, but just how the sensor is oriented and where you're holding it in your hand. And of course, to some degree, your own height. But it uses an ultrasonic solution that detects these objects. So instead of walking into branches, walking into water fountains, walking into street signs, all of that, this picks up those signs. And it gives you a haptic. That's the vibration, the vibratory feedback. It also gives an audio feedback. So it's going to alert you that there is something, that there's an object, again, between uh, your waist and about seven feet up and let you steer around it. It also has a touchpad on it. So you have a touchpad, you have a haptic device, and now you can put your smartphone in your pocket because it'll connect wirelessly to your smartphone. So now you free up a hand. And I know that that's a big issue in for many people or when they're using assistive technology, because they have a cane in one hand, the other hand's with their phone, particularly if there's a some sort of an image required on it. And you're not always hands-free then, and that's not an ideal situation. In this case, you pair your phone with a smart cane, with a WeWalk cane. You put your phone in your pocketbook or your pocket, uh, whatever makes sense for you. And you will get audio feedback. They strongly recommend that you use uh, earbuds or a headband. Uh, you can find some of the solutions on my website. Uh, so you get the audio feedback, you get the haptic feedback, 
and it has a connection to the Alexa software. So you can be out walking and say, where's the nearest coffee shop? It'll tell you where it is, and then it'll give you turn-by-turn directions, again, with audio and vibration to where you're going. So uh, they also, I never heard how they did it, and I don't know how effective it was, but they set it up so that you could do social distancing. You know, that six-foot gap that's impossible if you're, if you're blind, that you're trying to maintain between shoppers and a grocery store or something like that. They set it up with that. Again, I'm not quite sure how they did it because it seems like it'd be the same as detecting objects, but, but whatever they did. Clever technology, brilliant technology, really. The problem with it is it's, it's pretty tech heavy. So I think if you're good with technology, I think you'd find it an amazing device. It's just about a foot long. It weighs nine ounces. So it's designed to be as about as light as it could be with everything that's packed into it. And you attach it to your cane or, or it comes with a cane if you need it. But it's really the handle that's smart. Um, so that's the first piece of it. But because of the capabilities, I really think you need to be somewhat tech savvy to use it well. If you fit in that category, you're going to love it. Um, I want to interject something um, right now about that, because there's something you'll find this on my website. One of the things that I hear from a lot of people is I'd like to get more technology, but it costs too much. I can't afford it. There are a lot of solutions out there, and I can help you find some of them. My best resource or the best resource is your local association for the blind. They're going to understand what's available via the government and otherwise better than I will. But if there's a vet, if you're a veteran, uh, there is a group, um, uh, the name is eluding me right now, right now, but there is a group that for any veteran of any war uh, will buy the technology they need. It's not the VA, it's different from that. It started out as the Semper Fi Fund, and I think it's actually called America's Fund now. America's Fund, or America's and Semper Fi Fund, something like that. But if you're a veteran, they will buy any of your technology for free. All you have to do is kind of go through an interview process and validate what your needs are and why you qualify. There's another thing. This is what you're going to find on my website. The WeWalk folks kind of did an interesting thing. I don't if if you've heard of crowdfunding, there are many versions of that. There's like a GoFundMe that some people will use when somebody's ill or they've lost a spouse or, or different things like that. Uh, there's something called Indiegogo and, and other ones like that where you can raise money for startups and for artistic venues, that type of thing. Well, the folks that we walk adapted that process and they have something set up. And this is something, as I say, you can access on my website where you click on the link and then they'll do a little interview for you. It takes a little bit of time, but they'll set up a crowdfunding solution for you to raise money from friends and family. and then. Somebody like me who doesn't have a need for the cane can also raise money and donate it. So I raised money to buy two canes and I gave them away right around uh, December, January uh, last year. I'd like to raise money again. I haven't gotten any more donors, but it's there. So if you have people and maybe you find it hard to, to ask them, this is set up for you to say, I heard about this amazing cane. I think it would give me more independence I'd love it if you could give me 10 or $20 or whatever, and then you send them the links. The cane is $600, but if you have enough friends and family put something in, maybe you can raise it. And again, people like me try to raise money so we can donate them to other people. So it's worth looking at. I'm not aware of any other solutions that use that particular approach, uh, but, but it's a good one. And I think it could be adapted by other companies. 
The other two bits of assistive technology I want to tell you about are quite a bit different. So the one is called the See Me Cane. It's the it's one word again, but it's S E E M E See Me Cane. It was developed by a young man who is blind, deaf, who has been hit by cars three different times and made it through. So that's a good thing, but that's pretty bad to be hit by cars three times. But what he developed is he went out with his normal cane, his white cane, and he was dodging. He said it was at night. He was crossing a crowded intersection. It was was very dangerous. He was dodging cars. But he created something that if you've ever been able to see, it looks like a lightsaber out of Star Wars. The entire length of the cane lights up and it has an on off button and a way to change the batteries. He went out about 20 minutes later to the same intersection, turned his see me cane on and everybody stopped 25 to 30 feet away. And he said no cars moved until he was completely across the intersection, which to me is stunning. Uh, I think it's just a great tool. And it's not that people don't care or aren't trying to pay attention, but people are distracted when they're driving. And, and at night, it's even harder to see. Maybe they don't see the cane. You'll see this cane. It's bright. So it's not quite commercially available. It will be soon, although he has prototypes available that he would sell. But it's very different from the WeWalk cane because WeWalk is filled with, in, call it intelligence. This has an on-off button and it is highly effective. I have know both groups. I've been trying to get the WeWalk team to put their smart handle on the CME cane. And I think you'd have a smart and simple cane there, but uh, one way or another, it's another group I'm involved with. And I think it's brilliant technology, particularly if you're suffering both on the hearing and vision side, it gives you a lot of protection that doesn't exist. He also believes that it stands out during the day, and I convinced him to switch over to an LED solution that would have a lot more flexibility, uh, maybe particularly for flashes, but I think it's most effective at night uh, when it's dark out. I'll tell you about one other, and then maybe I'll just pause. I realize you can raise your hands if you have questions, but I'll pause just briefly to see if you have questions at that point. But the last one, and I'm going to have a giveaway of this sometime over the next month or two. But this comes back to thriving and thriving in the force of doing with a focus on doing things that you would have done before you lost your sight. I personally love to grill. And I have to imagine it's not too hard to grill when you can see what you're doing. You can see how's the meat responding if you press on it. It has to be a lot harder when you're blind. Plus, now you're kind of screwing around with all that very hot heat, uh, particularly if you don't touch the right spot. So somebody over in Greece had created a grilling thermometer they called the grill eye. And it was not designed for somebody who's blind. It was just a regular, it was a grilling thermometer where you could connect a probe into the meat It attached to a device that then had Bluetooth capability and could connect to your phone via an app. And they had somebody who was blind come into the store in Greece and he looked at it and they said, oh, you know, do you want to try that? He goes, well, it's not accessible to somebody who's blind. I like the idea, but it wouldn't work for me. This team spent about a year and a half redesigning the technology so that it would work for somebody who's blind. And this goes back to a point I made towards the beginning. They've created better technology for everyone by creating a technology that in this case works for somebody who's blind or visually impaired. But this thermometer, I used it on my recent vacation. Uh, Chris was asking about my vacation in Hilton Head. I used it in Hilton Head. So you stick the probe in, and instead of hovering by the, the grill or lifting the, uh, the, the top off periodically to see where you are, 
you go over, if you're of a mind, you grab your adult beverage, you sit in a swing, and you swing while you wait for the grill. And then it gives you a little alarm that tells you it's at the temperature you want, and you go and pull it off. So brilliant technology when you're sighted, I think invaluable technology if you're blind. And as I said, I haven't picked a date yet, but sometime in the next month, month and a half, I'll be giving one of those away on my site. And it'll just be a matter of of uh, going to my site and commenting on a blog post that I wrote about it. Lauren Hemmendinger? I'm really interested in about all this technology. Is there a way like that we can get it in an email or send it to us so that we can get more information about all this technology and where we can get this technology? Hi, Lauren. We're going to put a page up on azcb.org. It's going to be source page for all of the panelists and the information that they've been able to provide us. So keep a lookout for that in the next maybe week. But yeah, we're going to we're going to put links and any presentations that we've been given. There'll be a resource page on the azcb.org website. Oh, okay. Great. So I have a question for the speaker, did your mother get a chance to use any of this technology? She did not for two reasons. Number one, she's she's been gone almost 10 years. So everything I'm telling you about is newer. But my mom, unfortunately, literally struggled to use a tape recorder, even when she was sighted. She just wasn't good with technology. And I will say it was a frustration to me because she loved to cook. She loved to do a lot of things. And I would always say, if you would just learn to use a laptop, you don't have to be a power user, even a tiny bit, but just learn to use it. Mm-hmm. It would open up so many additional things for you. And she she just couldn't. She couldn't get over that tech hump. And, and it was a shame. And it, it cheated her of things that she could have done. But no, unfortunately, mm-hmm. she never tried any of it. Okay, that was all I had. Everybody has different abilities. And that's cited too. I mean, we're all, we're all on a spectrum. That's It's why I was distinguishing the two canes. I find the we walk a little bit hard to use. And I think part of that's because I'm sighted and it really is designed for somebody who's blind. So it, it's not necessarily intuitive when you can see everything you're doing. It requires some technology. And I think that's true of other technologies out there. And I heard, I only came in for part of the conversation on the, on the washers and the dryers and all that, but some things are very intuitive and simple and others are harder. The harder may be better, but if you can't use it, you can't use it. So one of the things that I always encourage people, I think this is part of what you were saying, find a place to test it. A lot of these things that I'm telling you about either are in the hands of associations for the blind, and I'm using that generically for the organizations that serve state by state, or they can get access to it because something might work great for one person, not work at all for the other. So before you buy, it's a good thing to try it if you can. I will say, I'm going to throw this out only because maybe somebody has the right connection. I think a lot of associations for the blind and lighthouses have a lower consumer shop. I think there's a gap there. I really think that those shops ought to be in mainstream stores. I tried for quite a while to get Best Buy to do this. I have been trying with some other with other stores, big box retailers. Uh, I've tried a bit with Lowe's because they've done something on the pet front. They partnered with Petco, so people bring their pets by to be groomed. And while they're waiting for the pet to be groomed, they're out shopping at Lowe's instead of Home Depot. I think it's brilliant. So I reached out to Lowe's and I said, you know what, you guys should have a little shop for people to try assistive technology because then, number one, you can employ somebody that might be a volunteer at an association for the blind now, so you can employ them. 
They can let people test the technology. Meanwhile, your caregiver or your loved one is shopping at Lowe's or Best Buy and, and getting their own technology. I think it would really change it if you had mainstream, call it ubiquitous access to test, try before you buy. But I know it doesn't exist. And to the best of my knowledge, it doesn't. It's, it's available again in associations for the blind nonprofits and that type of setting. I throw that out. So I'm going to move on to employment next. And I think I liked the, I guess, the video that came out on AIB. The 70%, some would dispute that. Some would say it's 50 or 55%. Regardless, it's a ridiculous percent versus the unemployment rate for people who are sighted or who are not blind. I think we need to find many more opportunities. And there are two reasons. Well, there's several reasons, I guess. And I heard them come up. I think even Melanie made it as part of her testimony. Someone made the comment. Number one, because you're blind doesn't mean you don't want to contribute. It was on the video. That's right. You want to work. You want to work just as anybody else does. You don't want disability paying for your family. You want yourself paying for your family. That's part of self-worth. So that's part of why we should have more employment. But I think there's a tendency to say we need to employ people who are blind because it's just the right thing to do. It's, it's, it's a good idea. They deserve a chance. The Association for the Blind that I was I was on the board for a while, the one that helped my mom, they said that all the time. And every time they'd say it, I'd say that's the wrong approach. Companies like Merck, where I worked, they do have some altruism, but they're also beholden to stockholders. They don't do things for pure charitable reasons. They do them because they make business sense. And employing people with disabilities, especially people who are blind, makes huge business sense. And that's the focus you should bring whenever you have a discussion about saying that you want to find work or you're actually in the middle of trying to look for work. You're not a compromised solution. You're actually a better solution. Keep in mind, everybody's on a spectrum. I'm not saying everybody's better than everybody who's blind is better than everybody that's sighted. But you bring some special things to the table. I want to make sure I get off. The one is cognitive diversity, and that's really important. If you get a whole bunch of people on a team, they can all be Ivy League graduates, but they all think the same way, and there's a danger there. I think it's one of the greatest dangers. There was a, I'm going to make this a bit of an aside, but if you look at the backstory to Apollo 13, there's an interesting aspect there. I think everybody that has ever been cited at any point in their life has an image of NASA and Apollo 13 of a whole bunch of older white guys in white shirts with ties with pocket protectors. So they all look identical. It's this little clone of people in white shirts and ties and white guys. But there was a difference. They came from all sorts of different settings. They had different industry backgrounds and all sorts of things. So they thought differently. They had what is called cognitive diversity. That's the nature of somebody who's blind. You just see the world differently than somebody who's sighted. You have to, because everything you do is from a different perspective. That cognitive diversity makes a team stronger. Some people like the term differently abled. Some people don't. I, I've been a fan of it, but as somebody who's sighted, maybe that's why I like it. But to me, it's just a difference. If a building is on fire and the lights go out, I want the person who's blind with me. Nothing changed for them. They're going to exit that building beautifully because nothing changed. For me, all of my senses have been taken away and I'm not used to it. I talked about designing this assistive technology for people who are blind. Same principle. You're creating something that's better for everyone. 
because you're looking at it from different perspectives. So you're bringing cognitive diversity to a team that's going to make them more innovative. It's going to make them more creative. In that same vein, if you're not familiar with Randy Lewis and the Walgreens story, I would read that book. I would find it. It's called No Greatness Without Goodness. Randy had a son with intellectual disabilities, and he decided his son was never going to have meaningful employment if he didn't create the setting. So he was a VP and eventually senior VP in distribution at Walgreens. He committed to hiring 10% people with disabilities. He ended up hiring 30% people with disabilities onto his staff uh, on the distribution side. And a lot of things were discovered. They, the retention went up. Lost time went down. That's counterintuitive. People think, oh, if I get somebody with disabilities, I have to worry about accidents. No, it was actually the opposite. They were safer, in part probably because they knew they had to be more careful. Productivity increased. But the thing that I find, I'm going to say coolest, is the managers of the folks that were being hired said, I like my job better. These people want to be here. They're not bitter. They're not unhappy. They, they don't hate their job. They love that somebody employed them. So I actually like being their manager. It's a lot more fun. So it's a great outcome. One of the stories I like to tell is they, they hired forklift drivers who were deaf, which sounds pretty crazy. Do I really want somebody driving this big, heavy industrial machine in a warehouse that can't hear when that person screams stop? Their safety record was better than the people that could hear. And the reason for it was they couldn't hear. So they were more careful. They looked around much more. They paid much more attention to what was around them. So these are powerful reasons for a company to employ somebody who's blind or visually impaired or with other disabilities. They're powerful things for you to include when you're interviewing. You're not a compromise. You're an improvement and recognize it, believe it. IT skills is another area, and this is particularly true for people who are blind or visually impaired. You have to, in many cases, learn to use your technology in a way that I don't. Uh, when I worked at Merck, if I had trouble on my laptop, you know what I did? I got on the phone. I said, hey, help desk, having trouble here, and they would take care of it. A lot of people, a lot of help desks don't understand JAWS. They don't understand other assistive software technology like that. So by your nature, somebody who's blind or visually impaired is more likely, of the spectrum, more likely to understand more and be able to do more than somebody that isn't because they have to. So you're bringing that skill to you. Um, just getting up and getting to work. What you have to do is different and harder than that person who's cited. So focus on that. If you're interviewing for a job, it's not a compromise. It's an improvement. You're bringing things to that team they don't have that will cause them to be a better team. And again, if you have any connections to employers, please introduce me and make this pitch to the employers. So what you'll find on my site, and I'm getting towards the end of my hour or so, you're going to have access to all this via the resources that Melanie said, but several different things. They focus on veterans, military spouses, and people with disabilities. The first, and many of you probably are familiar with the National Industries for the Blind and a spinoff they created called NSITE, N-S-I-T-E. If you're not familiar with them, you can see them on a link on my site that Melanie's going to be sharing. But they, in case you don't know, they're the largest employer of people who are blind in the country, and they're affiliated with 100 uh, regional affiliates, which could include the Arizona Council for the Blind. I'm not sure, Council of the Blind, excuse me. But it's a big workforce of people who are blind or visually impaired. But they committed a number of years ago to let's get people into mainstream employment. It's great if you're working for AIB, the Arizona Industries for the Blind. But maybe you want to work for Merck. You know, well, maybe you want to work for somebody that doesn't have blind in the title because, hey, 
I did before it. Let's say you lost your site uh, midlife, something like that. I worked at Merck before. Why can't I work at Merck now? So they're doing good work, but they want to get it to the point where you're mainstream and meaningful employment. So they have taught people who are blind and visually impaired to be contract and government contract closeout specialists. They just had their first class. It's not just anymore. A couple months ago, their first class graduated from the Cisco Academy. They came out with mainstream IT skills, CCNA certifications. They didn't have IT skills going in. They learned them. Uh, They have a lot of help centers and call centers, and that's all right. I think that gets more towards the marginal employment, but it depends on what the call center is doing. Some of those are highly paid, particularly depending on the material they're dealing with. I brought them a solution that came out of Vermont that that really intrigues me, and that's teaching people who are blind or visually impaired to be talent sourcers. That's the input to recruiting. When a company is looking for people to bring in to fill an open position, they rely on talent sourcers, either internal or external, to help get that initial cadre of candidates. So they taught people over a 16-week course how to be talent sourcers, all sorts of in-depth searching uh, that goes way past LinkedIn and things like that to a lot of different search technologies. And then those people are going to go, the graduates that just graduated actually last week, are going to go and do internships. Some of them are going to BMS, to Bristol-Myers Squibb, and then others may be going to other settings where they, as interns, will do talent sourcing. And one of two things is going to happen. Ideally, the company's going to say, wow, they're amazing. You know what? I thought it would be hard to work with somebody who's blind. It's not. It's actually really easy in the accommodations. $1,500, or in some cases, maybe nothing, depends on the IT setup, and they're going to hire them. But at worst, now their resume says, I did talent sourcing at BMS. And not talent sourcing of people with disabilities, talent sourcing of anybody, any skills. So mainstream skills for people who are blind or visually impaired. When Insight launched, the whole concept there was to create a kind of a contract to hire situation where companies would hire the folks and... uh, Again, see them working and realize that the hurdles were small uh, and there's no reason not to hire somebody who's blind or visually impaired. It's a free resource for people who are blind or visually impaired. You can register for free. The links are on my website. And obviously the links are via NIB and Insight too. You don't even have to go to my website. That's one solution. Another thing, and I'm only going to touch on this one real briefly. It's probably more for veterans than people with disabilities, although it applies There are tax credits associated with hiring a veteran, a person with disabilities, or eight other what are called work opportunity tax credit categories. It's long-term unemployed, it's SNAP benefits, it's ex-felons, 10 different groups. Companies get paid a tax credit if they hire somebody with that. And there is a Navy veteran who created a company called Veteran Tax Credits. I keep saying this, but again, it'll be in the links that you see from Melanie. And he registers veterans for free. It's the only group that he registers for free. But for somebody who's blind or visually impaired, you just need a recommendation from Voc Rehab and or SSDI. And this is not my expertise, but it's some combination of that. It's not real hard. And your local association for the blind, I'm sure, can help you with that certification. On the employer side, my friend who has this company called Veteran Tax Credits will help the employer claim the tax credit. So now you do a couple of things. You have your interview. And at the end, they always say anything else you want to tell me. And they can say, yeah, did you know if you hire me, you get a little tax credit? And they might say, oh, didn't know about that at all. Tell me about it. Or they might say, yeah, we know about it. It's too hard. And that's true. $63 billion is left on the table every year because it's too hard. But 
What my friend does is he manages this whole process for the employer and he charges them 15% of the tax credit. So they get 85% of the tax credit that right now they're probably not claiming. So now you're a candidate for this employer. You've told them why you're special. We went through all that and it's on my blog site and in a number of my blogs. And now you're going to bring on a tax credit. You're starting to look like a pretty good candidate to me because most people just want the job and they're trying to get as much money paid as much as they can get. You're bringing them resources before it even starts. If they don't hire you, they still have the resources. So you've just created a whole different situation, I think, whole different discussion. Uh, the, the last one is called Veterans Ascend. And it was created by another Navy veteran. It's a free resource. And it's a free resource for veterans and military spouses. But part of it's also free for people with disabilities, including blindness. Uh, this woman got out of the Navy and she just she was having a real hard time finding a job. And they told her she could be an admin. This was after almost 10 years of supervising people and being in a technical role in the military. And she didn't like their answer. And she ended up getting her bachelor's and her master's in and working in corporate HR for three decades. But several years ago, she created something called Veterans Ascent, translates the military skills to civilian. And then if an employer will share a compensation range, her algorithms, the way her software works, will find that employer the top three candidates for an open role based on skills, compensation, and location. So it's a whole different process. It's employer-controlled, free for the candidate, but employer-controlled. And what's nice about this for you, and actually I'm going to say, so she has a second module called Ability Ascend. That's for people with disabilities. Same concept, except she's added traits there. And the reason she did that is too many people who are blind or visually impaired are either under or unemployed. The traits are intended as a surrogate so that maybe you haven't worked as much as somebody else, but you can say, but you know what? I'm really good at whatever, whatever traits you want to put down. That whole thing is going to evolve to what she calls Talents Ascend this summer. And then it's going to include recent graduates, ex-felons, plus military spouses, veterans, and people with disabilities. Also, anybody can sign up on it. But if you're in one of those categories I mentioned, you're going to place higher. So when an employer is looking for candidates, if you have two people that are of similar background, the person who is blind is going to show up before the person who's sighted. At least that's my understanding of how it'll be. A couple of things go on. Number one, there are a lot of resources for companies that are great for somebody who's blind. If you haven't a disability in, it's all companies that believe in hiring people with disabilities. So their, their preference, not maybe their, not preference, but their understanding, their belief is that it makes business ROI, business sense to hire somebody with disabilities. And you're going to find those companies easily. But there are a lot of small companies out there that might be a fantastic setting for you in a virtual way or locally to you, but you don't even know about them. As Robbins, this is the Veteran Ascent founder, as her system comes together, she's going to be pairing employers with you, but of course, therefore, pairing you with employers. And you're going to meet employers you never heard of. Now, we have piloted with J&J, with Procter & Gamble, with the American Red Cross, all big companies. We've also done smaller companies uh, all around. So the magic in all of this is it's connecting you not just to well-known companies and companies that are registered with disability in. It's connecting you with any company that's already indicated because they're spending money on it, that they have a preference or at least a desire to hire more people who are blind or with disabilities. So 
It's a third resource, free resource. Again, it depends on whether you're a veteran or not. But in this, in the Veterans Ascend, Talents Ascend case, anybody that's on this call is probably eligible for it. Sign up, it's free. The employers pay for it. If you know employers that you think they'd love it, I'd love it if you sent the employer to me. Mallory has her hand raised. I'm a little concerned here and a question because there's so many different scams and different things out there. You go and look on, you know, different Indeed and all these different job sites and stuff. You don't know what's out there. So how do you know that these employers and whatever that she's finding are actually legitimate. How would you know this stuff? A couple different ways. And I guess I'm going to put no in quotes because I'm not sure how we ever know. As you said, there are a lot of scams and and very legitimate seeming things sometimes scam you. So I I can't give you a 100% answer because probably nobody can. But the employers that are on 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 her site are paying money to be there. Now, I realize that's not an absolute but they are spending money to have access to the database. That's step one. Step two is they have to upload their job description to the database. Uh, She does not scrape. And you mentioned Indeed, and I'm not saying Indeed's good or bad, but most of those sites scrape jobs that they find on the internet. What that means is nobody's saying, would you please post it? They're just going out and grabbing jobs and putting them on there. For Talents Ascend, Veterans Ascend now, they have paid and then they have uploaded the information, not an automatic upload. They've entered information to, to get the job on there. Those are two things. Then the third is you aren't even going to know they're looking at you until they open your profile. If they open your profile, now you're going to get a, a note that says, hey, Bob's Trucking Company is taking a look at you and here's their website. So you can go to the website. Again, I can't guarantee you they're real, but you can do your own investigation. And if they reach out to you, at that point, they're interviewing you and you can decide what you want to do. So no guarantee there, Mallory, but a lot of different steps, including the paying the money, the active work on uploading the job, the interviews they connect with you, conduct with you. So it's a lot of hurdles when there's so many other ways to scam somebody that I would say in general, somebody's not going to go there. We have another hand raised. Ted? Question I have. Um, And maybe you're the wrong person to answer it. But if I'm just starting school as a blind student, what is the most important skill that I'm going to need to learn to become employable? This is one of these things I'll I'll give you my own opinion. And I think there are probably people that are that are participating now that might have similar or better information. So let me give a preliminary answer. I think, and please feel free to reach out to me also for the same reason as I think it was Mallory that I mentioned out, because there are resources I can put in place for you that maybe will help you along the way. But to me, you want to reduce to the greatest extent possible the hurdles to an employer. And that means, I gave the example of somebody, a mentor who is go, who is working with an accounting firm. The accounting software did not play well with JAWS. He had to figure out how to make that work, and he did some homework there. So getting experience integrating whatever assistive technology you have, including JAWS or, or whatever else you're using, with the software that is relevant to the industry you're going into, that is incredibly important. You know, and I'm actually going to say, in my mind, maybe that's the most important thing, because you want to you want to make it easy for that employer to hire you. 
And being able to use the software systems they have is invaluable. But I'd love to have other people comment on that. It's a good question. Thank you. Ted, feel free to reach out. The same applies to everybody. I'm happy to, to give my thoughts. But one of the questions I've been asked, I've been I've had a lot of people, employers, say to me, I'd love to hire somebody who's blind, but I can't imagine what they could do. I've written posts about that because my answer is really just about anything. Uh, I, I always kind of conclude, conclude by saying, well, maybe not neurosurgery, although with robotic surgery, that may become accessible in the future. I had somebody give me a hard time because I said, great franchises out there. There's one that, hey, you can uh, build fences. Yeah, you probably wouldn't hire somebody who's blind to build the fence, but you could hire them to be the CEO. You could hire them to do the back office functions. You could hire them to do business development. The person said, I could put a fence up too. And I said, okay, fair enough. There are going to be people that can do a lot easier. So I, I think that's it. But I think, Ted, if you can combine that software access I'm talking about with as early as possible trying to choose the industry you want to be in so you can get some work experience as an intern, as a co-op or something similar, you're going to probably convince them that you'd be a great hire and getting those experiences will help too. I'm at the bottom of my hour. I just, I wanted to say one last thing. AIB, I, I want to tell you about Austin Lighthouse. So AIB had a great video there about one of the things they're doing. Austin Lighthouse did kind of a spin on that where they had people that were putting caps on bottles. They're very, very proud of that program. Somebody came in and said, that's not meaningful employment. Nobody dreams of putting caps on bottles. So he replaced the people who were blind, putting caps on bottles, brought in robots, and then he took the people who were blind and taught them how to manage the software on the robots. And those people went from relatively menial work at a place called an association for the blind, or in this case, the lighthouse. And they're now earning ninety dollars to $100,000 doing software programming of robots in mainstream companies. I say that to you to say, be creative, don't limit yourself. And something's better than nothing in my mind, but something great's a lot better than something. Ed, thank you so much for the perspective, for the information, for the excitement. I know you said earlier that someone had said that you sound passionate when you start talking about it, and you do. So it's been <laughs> wonderful. So thank you for joining us. Like I had mentioned with, I think, Lauren, we will have a, a resource page up. So you'll have links to any of the information that Ed has provided us, as well as our other programs and speakers. So thank you, Ed, for joining us. My pleasure. We have a chapter member. Our current vice president, Chris Despero, is going to talk to us about his experience with AZCB. Thank you, Lindsay. I joined our Arizona Council probably about five or six years ago. I had moved here from the UK, and even though I'd always had deteriorating eyesight, my eyesight started to really go bad. When I found the council, I was at a place in my vision loss that it was difficult. But when I found the council, I found members who were at varying stages of their vision journey. But most importantly, I'd found people who were warm, who were welcoming, who made me feel part of something. And being part of that and having AZCB and the American Council in my life helped me adjust better to my vision loss and where I was in my vision journey. As a result, I have met people, I have made friends that without the council, I doubt I would have met those people before. I don't think our, our lives or our paths would have crossed. I can't imagine what my life would be like now without some of the people that I have met 
they're more than friends. It goes deeper than that, much deeper. One thing I really appreciate about the Arizona Council and attending chapter meetings is somebody said to me recently at a chapter meeting, in order to be a confident blind person, you need to surround yourself with other blind people. And every time we have chapter meetings and every time we meet up, it's like I get a boost. I'm with other people who are living their lives, but who also have vision loss or various stages of their vision loss journey. It's okay. It's great to be with people that are experiencing, have experienced the same issues and challenges. We're all in the same boat together. And I cannot imagine what my life would be like now without those people and being able to share those experiences. Thank you, the American Council of the Blind, for all that they do at national level. We've obviously heard from Eric and Clark and all the great things yesterday that they were talking about that ACB does at national level to advocate on behalf of the rights of the blind and visually impaired. And thank you to the Arizona Council and to the friends and the family members that I have now made. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Absolutely. Last but not least, and very much in keeping with the theme of convention this year, which is speaking to be heard, uh, I would love to welcome April Reed, who's the Vice President of Advocacy at Ability360. And she's going to share with us how to make advocacy and the legislature a lot less intimidating. So we've called it Legislative 101, Advocating in Arizona. But I will pass this on to April to help make this a, a little more palatable, a little easier to start getting more involved. Thank you, Melanie. I'm very happy to be here with all of you this afternoon. I hope you've been having a great convention and that it's just been a good time of information sharing and gathering together. To introduce myself again, my name is April Reed. I'm the Vice President of Advocacy at Ability360. I've been here at Ability360 for 17 years, most of that time in our advocacy department. My pronouns are she, her, and for a description, I have short blonde hair. I wear glasses. Today, I'm wearing a gray shirt with a pink jacket, and I'm sitting here in my office at Ability360. One of the things I've learned as a person with a disability, I have a physical disability, something similar to Parkinson's disease. I've had that my whole life, and like I'm sure all of you have gone through various stages of my journey learning to be a self-advocate. And one of the things I've, I've learned as I self-advocated, but also as I joined this disability community and, and began advocating with others, working at a disability service organization, I certainly learned the power of advocating with our legislators and advocating with our policymakers. And I definitely know that that can be intimidating because it is for me and it is for other colleagues that I work with here and others that do this work at other disability organizations or social service agencies. This is intimidating and it can be. But one of the things that really helps is understanding the process. And once you kind of understand the process, it kind of connects the dots and it gets easier. So I'm going to start off today. I'm going to You'll feel like you're in high school at your government class for a little bit, but I want to give you the foundation of our structure in Arizona at our state capitol, 
And then I'm going to hopefully be able to give you some real practical tips and steps for how you get involved. My disclaimer for today, so Ability360 is a nonprofit organization. As such, we do not support or oppose individual candidates, elected officials, or political parties. Uh, we will not engage with comments or questions that endorse or disparage certain persons or in- entities. However, we do take positions on bills propositions and issues that affect the disability community as a whole. And today's presentation is intended solely to educate on the process of the Arizona State Legislature and ways you can get involved as an advocate. Throughout the presentation, I'll make sure to stop and open it up for questions. So if you have something, please jump in and ask, and we'll definitely make sure that we stop and and get those questions answered as we go through. So Arizona State Government. We have three branches of government. So we have our governor and his office. We have our court system and we have our legislature. And our legislature has two branches, our state Senate and our state House of Representatives. Now, our governor, that's Governor Ducey. You may know that. I've seen him speak on TV, um, give interviews. Our governor has a four-year term. And he can do two consecutive terms maximum. So Governor Ducey is about ready to finish his second term and he'll be leaving office. And he would have to wait for another term to pass before he could be eligible to run again if he chose to do that. Some of the governor's powers and responsibilities. He's in charge of vetoing, signing legislation. Uh, His office is also in charge of our state budget, which if you've been watching the news, that's going on right now. Our legislators, our leadership at the Capitol are negotiating with the governor and his office on the state budget as we speak. He's in charge of enforcing the state laws, proposing the budget. So he gets a, uh, he plays a strong role in saying things that he wants to see funded in our state. So at the beginning of the legislative session, he does a state of the state address And one of the things he talks about is what he wants to see funded in the new year. So programs he cares about and that he thinks are important for people in Arizona. He's also in charge of appointing vacancies. So vacancies in the Senate, vacancies on boards and commissions, or judges. And the interesting thing about Governor Ducey is historically he has now appointed more judges uh, than any other governor in our history. He could also call in our legislature for special sessions, and that's where they gather just to work on one issue, or they gather outside of the legislative session to work on an issue. And this legislative session, there's been a lot of talk about water and the drought that's impacting Arizona, and there's been leaders calling for the governor to call a special session just to work on bills related to water and our water shortage here in Arizona. So our court systems, that's the second branch of government, and the courts are in charge of applying the law, applying the legislation to individual cases, and they determine whether laws are constitutional. And you may think, well, how do we pass laws that aren't constitutional? Well, that does happen because, you know, sometimes we write a bill and it it must go through that process in the court system to be determined whether it's constitutional, whether it follows the Arizona Constitution or the United States Constitution. So the courts play an important role there in determining whether that law is constitutional. 
and they help set the precedent, right? So the law is going to be interpreted by the judges, and as they decide cases, that sets the precedent for that law. And then finally, we have the third branch, which is our state legislature. So in Arizona, there are 30 legislative districts. So you as an individual citizen, you have one state senator per district and two representatives per district. So at the Capitol, you as a person, you have a state legislature, uh, someone representing you in the state and uh, Senate, and then someone, two people representing you in the House. All state legislators in Arizona serve two-year terms, and they can serve a maximum of four consecutive terms. Now, in Arizona, we don't pay our legislators a lot. They get paid $24,000 a year plus per diem. And so that's very controversial. You'll hear people debate for more pay for our legislature and for less, you know, for not extending that. The thing to think about is if someone is only making $24,000 a year, it doesn't give a lot of opportunity for the everyday citizen to be able to afford to run and to do this just as their one job. So we see a lot of our legislators that are working two or three jobs in addition to their work as a legislator, and that can be very taxing and demanding. The other reason why that's concerning, we certainly saw that this year, where many legislators announced that they would not run for another term. And the reason that they cited was just the financial demand on their family and the need to find a better paying job. So that's definitely something for us as citizens to think about, right? All right. So the composition of our House of Representatives, we have 60 seats. And right now, there's a 31-29 split. So the Republican Party currently has the majority over the Democrats. And the party that holds the majority, they hold also then the leadership positions. So the Republicans hold the Speaker of the House as well as all of the committee chair seats. So that means that they have a lot of power when they are the majority party. That 31-29 split, it also means that the parties need to make sure that they've got all of their members in line to vote for a bill, because if they don't have the votes, it's not going to pass. It's so close of a margin. If someone decides to cross over the aisle and and vote a different way, they have a lot of power as an individual legislator because a split is so close. Same thing in the House. We have a very close split. It's 16-14, excuse me, in the Senate. 16-14 in the Senate the Republicans have the majority. Now, remember, there's 30 seats in the Senate. And when they have the majority, again, that means that the Republicans hold the president of the Senate position, as well as all the committee chair seats. So again, we're seeing very close votes. Every vote counts. And so when a bill goes to the floor to be voted on, like I said before, that party leadership needs to make sure that they know that all of their members are going to vote for that bill or the split is so close that that bill won't pass. So in Arizona, our legislative calendar is a little bit different. You see some states where uh, the legislature might be in session half the year, all of the year. Um, Some legislators, legislative sessions might only be every other year 
in some states. But in Arizona, we meet in January, beginning in January. It's always uh, the second Monday. So this year it was January 10th. Um, our legislative session began. And our session goes from January through sometimes May or June. This year, it's going to be a long legislative session. So I'm expecting we're going into June. February and March, that's really when bills are heard in committee. April, that's when on the 100th day of the session, which this year was April 23rd, in state law, it says that the session should end on the 100th day or by the 100th day. But in our state, we do allow leaders to extend and vote on an extension of the deadline. And so that's how we're able to extend uh, the session into May and June. One of the reasons why our session this year is going to go long is our legislators wrote a lot of bills. So this year alone, 17, over 1,700 bills were introduced. So that's a lot of bills to go through. That's a lot of bills to be assigned to committee, to be heard. And in addition to that, the leadership, they also have to put this budget together. And so right now we see that our governor's office, the leadership in the House of Representatives, the leadership in the Senate are all meeting together right now. This last couple of weeks, they've been meeting on and off. And it's taken a longer time this session to negotiate on the budget. And so that will extend the session as they continue to negotiate. Now, when the legislative session does end, it's 90 days after the session ends that the legislation could begin to take effect. So let's talk a little bit about how a bill becomes a law or how a bill becomes a bill, really. Let's start there. A bill could be written because a particular politician has a special interest in that subject. So at our legislature, we see a lot of teachers that are legislators. So you see a lot of education bills. They were teachers. They have Some of them are still teaching and uh, working as a legislature and a teacher at the same time. Can't imagine how hard that is. And so they'll write bills on education or education funding because of that personal interest. I'll give you another example. One of our legislators is known to be an animal lover, and you will see him every session write and introduce bills um, related to protecting animals and funding services for the Humane Society or other um, programs in the community that care and protect animals. So a politician might have a personal interest and they might write and propose a bill. Another way a bill comes a bill is that a constituent might have a concern. So when I use the term constituent, I mean us. Constituents are the citizens of Arizona. And so you or I might see a concern in the community and we might go to our legislator and say, you know, as your constituent, as somebody you are representing, I have a concern, and I want to tell you about this concern, and this is how I think a bill could address that concern. So I'll give you an example of a bill from this session. There were individuals that approached a legislator, and they said, we live in a condo, and we have an HOA, and our HOA is telling us that we can't put down artificial turf. 
And we want to put down this beautiful artificial grass because it will save money, save us money, save money on watering bills. And they're telling us, no, we can't do that. Can you write a bill that would prevent them from telling us what kind of grass we can put down? And so a legislature did write that bill. And that bill has been moving through committee and is being heard. Now, that's kind of a silly example. Maybe you think, gosh, I wouldn't have thought about grass and being important. But maybe to that individual, it was really very important. I'll give you another example. Condos again. Constituent approached a legislator and said, I want to put up a decorative flag. And my HOA is preventing me from doing that. Can you write a bill that would allow people living in condos with HOAs to put up decorative flags. And so that legislator did write that bill and said, you know, that's freedom of speech um, and people should have the right to do that um, in their home, in their community. Sometimes special interests groups or organizations or lobbyists will approach a legislator and say, we need a bill to address this issue in the community. And sometimes task force or stakeholders will come together and say, we need bills because there's an issue that needs to be addressed. So I'll give you an example of that. Recently, over the last three or four years, advocates in the disability community have come together in response to a really horrific situation that happened at one of our care facilities uh, where a woman with a disability was raped and gave birth to a baby. And so that really brought attention to the need to have better laws to protect vulnerable adults with disabilities and provide more funding for training for people that work in long-term care facilities to understand and recognize the signs of abuse and neglect. And so out of those stakeholder meetings, out of those task force and committees came multiple, multiple bills over the last three uh, legislative sessions to address some of the gaps that we had in our state um, regarding protections for people with disabilities and the abuse and and neglect of vulnerable adults. So a bill gets written and it's going to do something called drop. That means that the legislator introducing this bill alerts, excuse me, the president of the Senate or the Speaker of the House and says, I've written this great bill. I want it to be assigned to a committee and be heard. So a lot of our bills, remember I said 1,700 bills written just this session, a lot of them do die because they don't get assigned to a committee. And in order to go forward, they must be assigned to at least one committee and be heard. Committee assignments are really important. And the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate, they have the power to decide whether a bill is going to be heard in one of their committees. And so it's really important that you have their support on a bill. And if they don't like it, they won't assign it. Or if they don't think it's necessary, they won't assign it. I'll give you kind of a historic example that happened this legislative session. Uh, The Speaker of the House, uh, Rusty Bowers, did not like a bill that one of the legislators introduced. And it was somebody from his party. And he didn't publicly comment on that bill, but he assigned it to nine, 10 plus committees. And that was his public comment on his position on that bill. What he did when he assigned it to nine committees 
is he essentially gave that bill no chance of passing out of each of those committees in time to be voted on because it's just not going to happen. It's not going to be heard and discussed in each of those committees, voted on in each of those committees in time before the legislative session ends. So that was his way of saying, hey, I really don't like that bill, is I'm going to actually assign it to too many committees. He essentially did kill that bill. A lot of power uh, that our leadership holds to decide what is heard and what moves forward in their chamber. There are lots of committees But for disability-related issues, I think the most important committees to watch are appropriations. So appropriations just means money, right? (laughs) So if there's a bill uh, that says we're going to give $500,000 to adult protective services, that bill, because it's involving money, would have to be heard in the appropriations committee. So a lot of the programs we care about, they need money, they need funding, and so they're going to be heard in appropriations. So appropriations is an important committee to pay attention to. Another committee to pay attention to is education. Um, If you've got kiddos or grandkiddos in your life and they happen to have a disability, then you want to pay attention to the education committees because that's going to talk about funding. That's going to talk about you know, some of the policies that teachers are going to have to follow or school administrators are going to have to follow. Health and human services is one of the committees that I've watched and follow the most. Because if you think about it, lots and lots of disability-related bills are going to be related to health and human services, funding for nonprofits or funding for services like, for example, Meals on Wheels, Those kind of programs and services are going to be heard in the Health and Human Services Committee. Transportation, that's another committee to watch. And I have to tell you, some of the liveliest debate that I have watched this session has been in the Transportation Committee. And that is because right now there's a bill. It's related to funding for transportation for the next 25 years. And actually, if if you are interested, Ability360 will have the Maricopa Association of Governments presenting by Zoom on Thursday to talk about this plan. But this proposed transportation plan first has to pass out of our legislature. And what they're doing is they're saying, we're going to pass this so in November, voters can vote on approving this funding for transportation. So a lot of us, public transportation is a critical service and one that we rely on to get where we need to go to get to work. And so certainly that's important to a lot of people with disabilities. And don't make the mistake of assuming that our legislators get how important public transportation is. That's why they had such lively debate on it, because some of them support it and some of them don't. Uh, So that's an important committee to watch. Another important committee is government and elections. So there's been lots of voting related bills. And so the government and the elections committee are where those voting or elections bills are going to be debated. And so that's an important committee to watch and pay attention to. And you may have other committees that you're interested in. But as I said, I think these are, uh, if you're not sure what to follow, these are important committees to follow. Now, in committee, what's going to happen is the chair of the committee, the Speaker of the House, the President of the Senate will say, okay, I'm going to sign this bill on funding uh, services for the adult blind program. 
I'm going to let that bill go to the Health and Human Services Committee to be heard. I think that's a good bill. I'm going to let it be heard in my committee. But then the chair of that committee also gets to decide if they want to hear that bill and put it on the calendar for the committee. So again, sometimes bills can be ignored because the chair might not understand how valuable that bill is or how important that is to the community, or they might dislike that bill. And so as advocates, we need to know the names and the contact information of these committee chairs, because oftentimes we need to reach out to them to say, hey, please hear this bill in your committee. This is important for my community. This is important to me. This is the time and committee where the the small committee is going to debate the bill. They're going to ask questions. This is where the public can give public testimony and share their story about why the bill matters to them. A bill might be amended or changed here, and it may die. It may be that the committee votes no and the bill doesn't move forward. So that's why it's really important for us to be prepared to share with committee members why bills matter to us. And I'll tell you a little bit more later how to do that. All bills must go through the Rules Committee, and this committee was established to ensure that bills meet the constitutional requirements of our state. Again, the Rules Committee doesn't have to hear a bill if they don't like it, and that's another way that a bill can die. All right, once the bill goes through all the committees that it was assigned to, then it goes to caucus. And so caucus is where members of the Republican Party and members of the Democratic Party will hold a special meeting just with their party members. It's called caucus. And they'll discuss the bill and ask questions. And it's a way to make sure that each of the each of the members of the party are ready to vote yes or no on that bill. It's a way for them to prepare what they might say about a bill before it goes to the committee of the whole. And this is where the party leaders really attempt to rally the votes of their members, again, in preparation for that floor vote. If there's no changes, they all agree, they're going to, they're prepared to vote, it's going to go to the committee of the whole. And committee of the whole is where the entire chamber, entire chamber of the Senate, the entire chamber of the House gather and they have the opportunity to discuss the bill and adopt any changes. This is very interesting to watch because this will be another chance for the legislators to go on record about how they feel about a bill. And what I love, and I'll tell you a little bit more about later, is in Arizona, we can actually watch these. They are live streamed. So you can watch these debates. I watch a lot of them because it really helps me understand that personal opinion that the legislator might have about a bill, that helps me to be prepared to advocate with that, right? If I know that they really get a bill because they said, hey, this impacts one of my family members, I might reach out in the, and say to them, thank you. Thank you for supporting that bill. Thank you for telling how this impacts someone you know. Or if they don't, or if they have questions and they say, you know, I don't understand this, or I don't agree with this part of this bill, it gives me a chance to reach out and do some community or some direct education with them um, and really share about why that bill matters and answer questions that they might have. So if the bill passes through all the committees and it passes through Cal, then it goes on what's called the third read calendar. And um, this is where they vote. 
And in Arizona, typically you only need a simple majority. So 50% plus one to pass a bill. Um, There are a couple of times where you will need a two thirds or a three fourths of the chamber supporting a bill in order to pass it. Those are kind of special circumstances. Majority of the time, it's going to be that 50 plus one to pass a bill. Then once your bill's gotten through all the committees in the house, it goes back to the opposite chamber and it's got to go through that whole process I just described again. And it'll go through that same process in the opposite chamber. So the bill's going to go through its originating chamber then it's going to head over to uh, the opposite chamber and go through that whole process again. So that's why we need several months, right, of a legislative session to be able to do this. In order for a bill to become a law, it needs to be transmitted to the governor for his signature. And the governor has some choices there. He can sign a bill um, and say, I support this, and I'm glad this passed, and I'm going to put my name on it and sign it into law. He might bring cameras down or do a photo op. If he really is excited about a bill, he's going to do that. He can also choose not to sign a bill and just allow it to go unsigned. And that bill can go into law without his signature. Or he can, he might do that if he's like, well, I'm not a huge fan of this bill, but I don't really have a strong opinion about it. I'm just going to let it go into law. Or you can see him veto a bill and he'll say, I'm not happy that the House and the Senate sent me this bill and I am not signing it into law and he can veto it. Now, ways bills die. Like I said, they can die by, they don't get introduced. So the president of the Senate or the speaker of the House say, I'm not giving that to a committee. It's dead. I don't like that bill. I'm not introducing it. It can get assigned to unfriendly committees or too many committees and it can fail in committee. It doesn't get enough votes to pass. And maybe it passes through one house, uh, or excuse me, one chamber, but the other chamber decides, we don't like that bill. What were they doing over in the Senate? That's never going to pass the House. We're not listening to that bill. And it can die there. Or something in Arizona, we have something called a striker bill, which is when a bill that's live and has been moving through the committees, uh, the the sponsor of that bill might say, a bill died that I really love. And I'm going to strike everything in this bill that I have been supporting that I've sponsored. And I'm going to let the bill that died go and become a striker bill. And so it's literally inserting a bill that was dead into a bill that's still alive, striking everything in that live bill. And it gives new life to the bill that was dead. These bills get brought back from the dead. And so something that you think might have been dead and is not going to move forward it could come back to life, so to speak. And so this is a reason why we always need to pay attention for the whole legislative session. Because if there's a bill you didn't like and you think, oh, great, it's dead, it might come back to life as a striker bill. So you always have to pay attention. Uh, The other way a a bill could come back to life is maybe there's an appropriations bill. Um, So again, that's a bill to fund a program or fund a service. It has something to do with money. Maybe it didn't get assigned to committees, but the leadership or the governor's office really like that bill and want to fund that program or that service. And so they just will go ahead and put it in the budget. And so that's a way an appropriations bill can come back to life. So I'll stop right there for a second and just ask if there's any questions about your kind of civics 
101 government review here, if there's anybody that has any questions about the structure of our our legislature. All right. We have one hand raised. Mallory? How is it that you can, it doesn't make a lot of sense. You said in the beginning here where you got 29 in one side and 31 in the other. Why would it not be 30 and 30? That doesn't make a lot of sense because that screws everything up. Let me clarify. So you have two House of Representatives representing you. So there's 60 in the House and then there's 30 in the Senate and you have one Senate representative. So the split in the House right now is 29 Democrats and 31 Republicans. And in the Senate, the split right now is 14 Democrats and 16 Republicans. So always in Arizona, there's 60 House members and 30 Senate members. Okay, that's all the hands. So let's talk about why you should get involved. Why does this stuff matter? One of the arguments I'll make as far as why does it matter is that when you think about local government, local government is going to have an immediate impact on your everyday life. And yet truly very few people engage at the local level. I have literally heard legislators say, oh, well, this bill is really important to the people I represent, my constituents. I've gotten 20 calls about this. And when you think about that, 20 is not a very big number, right? It's such a small number, and yet that got their attention. And so when you think about it, these are the decisions that are going to affect your life immediately. And yet, Most of us don't engage. Most of us don't pick up the phone and call a legislator. And yet, if we did, we have a real opportunity to get their immediate attention. Again, I said this earlier, but as a person with a disability, our needs are underrepresented at the Capitol. And one of the most important things I've learned is that if I care about services and programs and funding for people with disabilities, that I've got to care about what's going on at the Capitol. It just goes hand in hand. That's where the money decisions are made. That's where new programs are funded. That's where our stories of living with our disabilities can really be impactful. And so, again, when they're not hearing from people with disabilities, they don't know those stories. They don't know how legislation or how a bill would impact us. And so being there and simply sharing your opinion And your story can really make a difference. And I've seen that happen. I'll give you an example. Uh, Just this legislative session, uh, there was a bill in the Health and Human Services Committee. And what it would do is it would make it a little bit easier, require a little bit less paperwork for families who have a child with Down syndrome to apply for state services. So families who had gone through this process came to that committee and they told their stories about how burdensome that was and how hard it is to qualify for services and how these services were so needed by their children and the fact that they had to fight so hard and get delayed was harmful to their kids. And these parents did a really smart thing. Not only did they tell their story, but they introduced their kids and had their children stand there with them. And afterwards, when the committee members got to respond, 
one of the legislators said, I won't forget the faces of these children. Thank you for sharing these stories. I won't forget that today. I'll remember that when I go to vote on the floor. And so that's such a simple thing, such a simple example, right? But that bill passed. It was signed by the governor. I don't know if our legislators would have voted for it or if it would have passed so easily if those parents and those kids wouldn't have been there to share those stories and for those legislators to hear them. Government representatives, local government representatives are more likely to be available to you. Now, if you're trying to contact a legislator during the legislative session, it's going to be hard. And the pandemic has made it really hard because you couldn't get an in-person appointment, but that's changing. It's opening back up. And typically, I would say if, if you want to talk to a legislator, you have an idea for a bill, you want to talk about an issue you're concerned about, um, you can contact them anytime. But if you want that in-person meeting, really the best time is July through December, because they're not in legislative session. That's all they do is meet with constituents and talk to groups. They can be really easy to access. They're also more likely to listen and check their own email and answer their own phone, or they have a very close relationship. It's not a big office. There's one staff person assisting them. So they touch base with that person every day about who have you heard from or what are the calls that have come in? What are the emails that have come in? What are people saying about this bill? What are we hearing about this issue? So again, you can have a lot of impact. You can actually get a lot done because it's easier to build a relationship with that person. You can go back to them again and again. And that direct contact often means um, that the progress you can make is greater. So how do you get involved? Well, it's really easy in Arizona to find what districts you were in. So again, as I said, there's 30 districts in Arizona. It's based on your address. If you don't know that, you can look on your voter registration card, your voter ID card, or uh, there's a real easy website. It's ArizonaRedistricting.org. You can put in your address there and it'll tell you what district you were in or call me and I'll help you. That's no problem. Once you know your district, then what you can do is you can go to our Arizona State website, ArizonaLedge.gov, or Arizona Legislature website, and you can, using your district number, you can look up your legislators. What's great about that, too, not only can you get their names, their phone number, you get a picture, there's a bio, so you get to learn a little bit about their history. So if I'm going to meet with a legislator who's a teacher, that might change what I talk about with them, or it might change how I talk um, to them. Uh, You can also find out the committees they're assigned to. You can find out the bills that they're sponsoring um, that session. So it gives you a whole wealth of information about these people who are representing you, and it really helps you prepare for talking with them, preparing you for that email or that phone call or that meeting. So again, www.azledge.gov, you can look up your members on that website. Now, there's several ways you can contact your legislators, and I think that's kind of about personal preference, right? What you feel comfortable with, first of all, um, and what's convenient for you. Um, You can call their office, number one. Number two, you can email them. Number three, you can tweet them. Believe it or not, our Arizona legislators Many of them like Twitter, (laughs) 
and they'll talk about legislation. They'll tweet about things they're, they care about. They'll also respond to constituents on Twitter. Um, so that's a good thing to follow if you want to uh, know what your representative is thinking or feeling. You can do snail mail. That's okay. Um, but it may be too slow if you're advocating for a bill that's going to be being voted on very quickly. So think about the timing, right? If you don't have a lot of time, you better email or call, right? And like I said, you also can schedule that meeting if you'd like to have that sit down and you feel comfortable doing that in person. They're not scary. (laughs) They're humans. And I think what helps a lot in preparing for that meeting is getting on and doing your research about who they are, right? Because it's a lot easier to meet with somebody when you know a little bit about their background and their policies and how they voted. So preparing for that meeting um, by doing your research can help you feel more comfortable. A couple of tips about calling legislators. Let's start there. So some will have answering machines. They do listen to those. So uh, don't feel disappointed if you get an answering machine. That's okay. Oftentimes they're going to have staff members answering those phones. Be nice to the staff, please. I cannot tell you how important that is um, for you to be nice and respectful to the staff. These are the gatekeepers. They're going to decide where you go on the priority list. And they're also the ones who help you get the meetings and can help answer questions. So being polite, being respectful is really important. Another tip, it's always okay to write down a little script. I actually do bullet points for myself. So you could write down a little introduction about, hi, my name is April and I live in your district and I care about this because I'm a person with a disability. You can kind of write that introduction down and it's okay to read that if you're leaving a voicemail. Give a couple of reasons why you support or oppose a bill. Make sure you leave your contact information because they may follow up with you. They may have questions for you. And then definitely make sure to thank them. If you're emailing, one of the things I like about email is I can do that anytime, right? I can do that in the middle of the night if I think of something I want to email somebody about. And they're going to get that right away. There's no delay. It's really easy for their staff to categorize emails. So they will do that. You know, how many emails did we get about this bill today? Or what are people saying about a need in the community? I've heard legislators tell stories about emails they've received from people talking about housing, because a lot of us know housing is a real issue. And somebody will send an email to a legislator and say, listen, my rent just got raised by $600. And this is how worried I am. And this is how this is going to impact me. That legislator not only read that email, but took it to the committee that they were sitting on that was hearing a housing related bill, read that email to all of the other committee members and said, listen to this. This is how scary it is for people right now uh, looking for housing and finding this housing shortage. So email can be very impactful. It's also an easy way for you to regularly contact them about issues that you care about. And sometimes people will say, well, April, is it bad to use a form letter? No, it's not. If you have a form letter that an organization you trust and support uh, gives you and says, hey, send this form letter to your legislator, that can still have impact. 
I always encourage you, though, to tell your personal story. Make sure you tell them that you're a constituent, that they represent you. Make sure you tell why that bill matters to you personally. Tweeting. As I said earlier, a lot of our legislators tweet. It's easy to get your friends and family engaged. If you tweet something to a legislator, you can get them to jump on board and say, hey, this matters to us too. But one of the disadvantages is that sometimes in social media, we are too casual or unprofessional. So make sure that the language that you use is appropriate and that you're still professional in that communication. And think about, you know, this is a public forum. So if there's something that you prefer to say more privately, then send that email or do that phone message or that call. In Arizona, not only do we have our Arizona legislature website, www.azledge.gov, on that website, we have a great program called Request to Speak. I can't encourage you enough to use Request to Speak. It literally allows you to look up bills by their bill number. Uh, You can read bills. You can see what your legislators have introduced and read those bills. And if you will set up an account in Request to Speak, it allows you to literally weigh in on legislation in a system that our legislators will see. So you literally can go in, click a thumbs up or a thumbs down on a bill And our legislators will be able to see that opinion. And they do go in to request to speak. And they do look at how people are responding to a bill, whether they're giving a thumbs up or giving a thumbs down. You can also write in comments. Now, the only hang up is that in order to set up an account, you have to go to the Capitol or normally you'd have to go to the Capitol. But Ability360 has a special accommodation with staff at the Capitol. And so if you would like to contact me, I can get them to set up your account remotely. And so that's great for people that are across the state or those of us who just don't want to travel down to the Capitol. You can contact us and I will help you get that account set up remotely. Now, if you choose to give testimony at the Capitol in person, a couple of tips. Remember, you're just going to have a short amount of time. So you've really got to be prepared with that elevator speech, so to speak. Um, You're going to get two minutes tops. And in some committees, if a lot of people have shown up to speak, I've seen them give each individual person one minute. So you've really got to be ready to say why you were there, why you care about a bill. Make sure that you're polite. They're going to cut you off and they're going to end your testimony if, if you are not polite. And it's a very formal process. Everything must go through the chair. So if you're preparing testimony, remember that you're going to say, Mr. Chair or Madam Chair, thank you for the opportunity to speak to the committee. I'm here to support this bill. And then if there's questions, you always have to go through the chair again. And so someone might ask you a question. You'll say, Mr. Chair, committee members, thank you for that question. Here's my response. So it's a very formal process and very time limited. So be prepared to just really be concise and be brief. Again, if I can leave you with some final tips and I'll open it up for some questions, some important final tips, tell your story, tell your story, tell your story. Make sure you tell how that bill impacts you. 
and why it matters to your community. Get the facts right. And if you're not sure of an answer to a question, it's always okay for you to tell the legislator, I don't know the answer to that, but I will get back to you and I will get that information. Again, be as concise as possible. Be clear, be brief, be nice, and definitely always make sure to mention if somebody on that committee is in your district, let them know you're a constituent of theirs, let them know that you vote, and be sure to thank them for their service. How else can you advocate? Vote. (laughs) If you aren't registered to vote, servicearizona.com, you can get registered to vote today. Uh, you can contact me and I'll help you get registered to vote. And I also encourage you another great way to kind of stay engaged in the legislative process and be prepared to advocate is following groups you care about and that share your values. So organizations, disability service organizations, follow their Facebook or their Instagram. Many of us have advocacy email listservs. Ability360 has that. We'll tell you about bills at the Capitol and let you know uh, when there's an opportunity to share something with your legislature, your legislator before a vote. Um, So that's a real easy way to stay engaged. It doesn't take a lot of time, but it lets you be a part of that process and stay up to what's happening at the legislature. With that, I'll open it up for final questions. Happy to answer anything I can. Lisa? It's actually Ron. We're sharing phones. I could actually ask April about 11 questions, but I'm going to try to limit it. First off, thank you for the uh, tip about the request to speak. That was news to me, and that's pretty cool. Question, one of the things that I'm interested in is there are a lot of organizations that are representing the disability community here in Arizona. And it is a little tricky to keep up with all the different organizations and all the different uh, social media places. Who do you, who is really kind of the best place for us to focus our efforts? And also how can we as an organization be more engaged with the larger effort that's being done within the community, across the community, across the state to advocate? And then one final quick thing is if we have an interest or a professional area where we're strong, how can we lend our efforts to the community in subject areas where we can offer some value to maybe try to help identify priorities and work on issues? Yeah, great questions. Thank you, Ron. Yeah, it is hard, right? We all get a lot of emails and and we're all getting a lot of messages and inundated with social media. So what I recommend to people is follow a couple of groups. And I can say, you know, I follow a couple of disability specific groups. So follow what's related to your disability, because of course, you're going to care about that. But then just generally, if you're thinking nationally, the National Council on Independent Living, AAPD is a good one to follow. Locally, the Arizona Disability Advocacy Coalition, that's a group of multiple disability organizations that come together to advocate at the Capitol and to do community education around advocacy. If you just have to pick one, that's a good group to do. We call it ASDAC for short, but it's the Arizona Disability Advocacy Coalition. The Governor's Council on Developmental Disabilities is a good group to follow. The ARC is a good group to follow. Ability360, we're real careful about how much we put out so that we don't overwhelm you. We're not going to tell you about everything because like I said, 
So many things do die. I don't want to waste your time and energy advocating for a bill that isn't moving. So we're real careful about what we put out and how often. But again, I think if you're if you're looking for one group, that Arizona Disability Advocacy Coalition is a good way to, to get involved. You can also be involved as an individual member. And there's opportunities for you to volunteer. And so you can volunteer as a subject matter expert. And so you can give um, some of your expertise to different committees. Um, You can also volunteer. uh, That group is very focused on educating people about the legislative process. So if you wanted to help out at a day at the Capitol or or volunteer your time to go around with somebody else and maybe do a their first their first meeting with somebody at the Capitol with their legislator. You can be a mentor and do that. So it's a good group to get involved in. But there are opportunities for individuals to be systems subject matter experts there. It also has organizations that are members as well. Other questions? All right, Mallory. Do you know if I know you said this you can go to the Capitol and this and that in your state and you can do this stuff online and this and that. Can you do this in other states too, as far as talking to legislatures and this and that? Can you do that nationally or how does that work? So you always have the right and the responsibility, I would say, to engage with your legislators. So you know, calling, emailing, scheduling visits, those are things you can do with your local legislators, no matter what state you're in. In Arizona, our legislators took the further step of saying, you know, we really want to be held accountable. Um, So on azledge.gov, you can watch live streaming of any committee hearing. You can watch the live stream of voting. And that is available in some other states. I think Arizona has more access than some other states, it's not always typical that you could be able to get on a website and watch a committee hearing. You could do that anytime in our state. Other states might have more limited access. I also you, you, you know, can say the request to speak system here in Arizona is very, very unique. It's not available often in other states. There are a few. And that's why I really encourage people to use that and set up an account and use that system because it's so easy to be on your couch in your pajamas, you know, log into your account and literally click a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And I'm sitting in those committee hearings and watching legislators before they vote say to each other, well, have you looked on request to speak? There's this many people for and against this. And so that can matter a lot to them. And it's such a great system that Arizona has done well. And like I said, thankfully, uh, some of the staff at the Capitol have been willing and and work with Ability360, so you don't have to go down there. If you email me, I'm at aprilr at ability360.org. You know, I have a simple form you'll fill out. I'll get your account set up with the request to speak. I just think it's great. And so we do have some conveniences there to watch and follow and, and share our opinion in Arizona that maybe they don't have in other states. I would say, you know, you always can reach legislators no matter where you're at, phone, email, scheduling that a visit. Um, it's very powerful and very impactful to do those things. All right. Well, April, thank you so much. I think we all found this very consumable. And uh, I think I learned more in the last hour than the whole semester I took in high school. Many. I agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) Civics 101, you know, yeah, because especially when you're involved in 
blindness advocacy. And, you know, I hear it because I'm a secretary of the chapter and I'm thinking, wait, what is this? <laughs> you know, well, I have to write it taken, down. So. You've definitely taken some of the stigma off of it. So I, I, yeah. think, I think we all can get our boots on and, and start taking baby steps. So thank you so mm-hmm. much. And thank you for spending part of your Saturday with us. Yes. Thank you. My pleasure. And please know I'm here as a resource. So if I can be of any assistance, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, and I'm always excited and happy to help people get involved and engaged. They don't want to hear from, from organizations. They want to hear from people and they want to hear your story. And I can't encourage you enough about how powerful it is. If you don't know what else to say, you just tell your story and that changes people's minds and it gets to their heart and changes their vote. And so you have more power than you, you realize. So if I can help you tap into that, don't hesitate. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Next, we will hear from Ron Brooks from the central chapter of AZCB to talk about his experience with the organization. My name is Ron Brooks and my wife, Lisa and I, and our family live in Phoenix. And I wanted to take a couple of minutes to share just a little bit about why I am a member of the Arizona Council of the Blind and what the AZCB means to me. I joined the American Council of the Blind all the way back in 1990. I was finishing up my undergraduate degree at Indiana University and heading off to a graduate program at San Francisco State And I won a scholarship from the ACB. So I came to the conference that year, which was in Denver. And I met some folks and made some friends and had a lot of fun and learned a lot and came to really enjoy the American Council of the Blind. So I decided to join and participate in that group. And I've been a member of ACB ever since. So when we moved to Arizona in 2006, Uh, It just made sense to join the Arizona affiliate. And I have to say that over the last 16 years uh, of living in Arizona, the AZCB has been uh, an important part of my life during that whole time. My wife and I, we've been to a number of the conferences. We've been a member of the uh, Central Arizona chapter. Uh, We've really uh, enjoyed some of the social events that the AZCB sponsors, And some of the folks who are in the AZCB are close friends of ours. So the organization has really given us a lot of things that are important to us, just living here in Arizona. And I just want to close by saying there's really four things I think that an organization like the AZCB offers uh, for just about anybody. Um, First is peer support. You know, we are all on a journey and being able to talk to people who maybe have been there first and learn how they managed certain challenges or life events or just all the things that come up for us as people who are blind or visually impaired is really, really helpful. And it saves us from having to figure stuff out all by ourselves. Second is just information. We have conferences like this one. We have local chapters and all of those Events are opportunities uh, to gain information that we can use uh, in our everyday lives, at work, in our advocacy efforts, all the places that are important. And AZCB is a great conduit uh, for that kind of information. Third is advocacy. There are, from time to time, issues that come up 
that really demand our attention because they affect us very directly as people who are blind or visually impaired. And as a citizen, I can always use my own voice to contact a legislator or a congressional representative or the governor or somebody else. But when I can be a part of an organization that is speaking with a collective voice, when that happens, everybody's voice is more powerful. It's amplified. So the AZCB has given me a chance to amplify my voice on issues that are important to me as a person who's blind or visually impaired. Finally is the friendships. I said it earlier, a lot of the people here in AZCB are close friends of mine. And that is really, really amazing because it's hard to make friends sometimes. And it's especially hard when the people that we're trying to make friends with don't understand the life that we are living as people who are blind or visually impaired. Having the ability uh, through the AZCB to meet and get to know and become friends with other people who are blind or visually impaired is really, really encouraging. It's safe and uh, it's special. And it all comes from organizations like AZCB. So if you're a member of AZCB, then I congratulate you. And if you're not, I encourage you to think about joining. I found it to be an incredible organization and I'm sure you will too. Thanks. All right. Thank you so much, Ron. I agree 100% with what you just said. So what's going to happen now is we're going to go into a lunch break. And uh, those at 2 o'clock, please join us back here if you are a member of the Arizona Council of the Blind for the business meeting where we will hear reports and hear updates and um, elections. If you do not wish to join us for the business meeting or... Uh, did not register for the business meeting. We thank you immensely for your participation and your interaction and hope to see you again at another convention or somewhere else. And do Melanie or John or anyone else have anything to add to that? I want to encourage non-members, okay? We we did circulate a link for, uh, and it was the same link for the convention and the annual meeting. I want to strongly encourage those who are not members of the Arizona Council to follow us uh, with Echo devices on the ACB uh, media. You can enable the ACB media skill, and it's on channel ACB Media 8. Uh, If you ask the A-Lady to play ACB Media 8, even without the skill, I believe she will do that. Yeah, that's really all I've had. I'm, I'm encouraging, you know, folks who are outside of the jurisdiction to uh, see how we do business. If you wish to do that, that's an, that's a, an opportunity that's available to you on ACB Media. That's all I had. All right. Well, if, if no one else has anything to add, we will take a break for lunch and then everyone join us back here at two o'clock. Muted.